We all like feeling nostalgic, remembering the past, rediscovering a memory you didn't even know you forgot. But is nostalgia clouding media creation? In this episode, we weigh the pros and cons of nostalgia in Star Wars. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode. Now, in uh, full transparency, we're actually re recording this intro, uh, not the whole episode, just the uh, introduction here. Uh, Charlotte and I actually recorded this episode about, I think it was three weeks ago now Mm -hmm. two and a Uh, half weeks ago yeah something like that that. given everything that's kind of happened in the past two weeks uh you know the the death of george floyd and the protests that have been happening and continue to happen around the country and around the world uh we thought it was kind of necessary and appropriate to take a second at the beginning of this show and kind of talk about it a little i know that charlotte and i have been doing a lot of self-reflection as well as a lot of uh, education for ourselves <laughs> about a lot of the things going on in the world right now. And we definitely encourage all of you to do that too. And uh, we did just want to share that we came together with our Patreons uh, this month and did a donation to different organizations around the country that are supporting a lot of these different causes that were suggested. These organizations were suggested by our Patreons. So, uh, and along with that, we compiled different resources that our patrons suggested, as well as ones that we've found really helpful in the past couple of weeks, just learning about these topics more, honestly. Um, I think Charlotte and I have both kind of realized that while we thought we were aware of some of these things going on, there was actually so much that we didn't know. Um, and so it's been a really big learning, uh, a time of learning for us. And so we put together some of those resources, as well as the different organizations suggested by our patrons the past couple weeks. If you're interested in learning more about that, we would highly encourage you to check it out. Um, the topic of our episode today is the topic of nostalgia and um, when we planned this episode a month ago now at this point, we planned it with a survey that really talks about uh, the elements of nostalgia that people uh, think work within Star Wars and the elements of nostalgia that people don't think work within Star Wars. So you'll hear us plug it a couple of times throughout this episode. And we really just wanted to take a moment here at the beginning of the episode too. you know, if you were going to take time to fill out our survey about Star Wars and nostalgia, we're really excited about that. But we also hope that you would take a second to look at some of these other resources and organizations that uh, we came across the past couple weeks and, um, you know, share, share with us too on our social media, uh, anything that you think we're missing or would be helpful for others as well. Yes, absolutely. I feel weird about the fact that we plugged the survey and taking the survey so much in the episode, just because I feel like in this time, there are so many petitions to sign. There's so many places to be an online activist, so many things to learn about online in regards to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it felt like we couldn't rightfully put out the episode without talking about that. And I'm really happy that so many of our patrons came together and I have compiled, like Caitlin mentioned, them into a Google Sheet that I will uh, put in the comments. But I will also put 
I don't know if you've seen around the internet, this card that kind of has together all of the petitions to sign and the play, the resources and things to learn and everything, as Caitlin mentioned. And I'm really excited about this episode of Nostalgia. I think this is a topic that Caitlin and I were really eager to learn about and to talk about. And I just in good faith couldn't go on by putting out this episode coming out two weeks ago and also coming out without mentioning the Black Lives Matter movement. We wanted to make sure that we were talking about the important things that were going on right now in the world because they've, they're have they incredibly important and the more people that talk about it, the more awareness there is to it and what small part we can do with our show here, um, Charlton, I think is really important. So we, like I said, we wanted to take a moment to just address it here at the top of the show. Um, transitions between really important topics like that to Star Wars <laughs> are not the smoothest or the most graceful. So um, I guess like this is where we kind of officially start our episode about nostalgia. But um, yeah, if you have any questions about anything that we've been looking into or about um, what others have had to say online, I know a lot of our listeners aren't as involved on Twitter, which is honestly where Charlotte and I have been having a lot of these discussions with other people. So if that's not your circle and you want to know more, please feel free to reach out to either of us. We would be happy to talk with you more about what um, – what people have been telling us and recommendations that we've gotten, uh, different resources that we've been learning from. So when it comes to nostalgia, I think Caitlin and I were so excited to talk about this concept because it is, as we discuss in this episode, a double-edged sword. I think we all have nostalgic feelings. We all understand why we and marketing and studios and and movies and TV shows are falling back on the theme of nostalgia so much in their production. Um, but I think that Caitlin and I really just wanted to break that apart, talk about it, and really get to the heart of how does nostalgia influence Star Wars right now. And in this two-part episode, we are going to talk about defining nostalgia, the pros and cons of it. And then in the next episode, if you fill out our survey, after you click on those awesome links from the Black Lives Matter movement, we will talk through our survey because I really am so eager to hear what you all think about nostalgia in Star Wars. I think immediately you might think that's a negative. And I think throughout this entire episode, I just want you to keep that in mind that your your bias might be <laughs> kind of shifted because certainly when we were talking this out, mine was because I think it's just part of being a filmmaker, about being a, a creative because you tell stories from what you know. So the survey that we had put together is basically, it, I, I can't, we've already made it and I can't remember how many questions it is, but it's, I think it's 12 to 15 questions. They're mainly yes or no questions about the, what you enjoy about nostalgia or what you don't enjoy about nostalgia. It shouldn't take longer than five minutes. Um, it can take as long as you want it to. There are uh, like fill in the blank options for a lot of these questions if you want to go more in depth. But uh, I think kind of reflecting on the discussion that we had a couple weeks ago about this, I think um, we, Charlotte and I, I think had a bit of a realization about our own biases towards nostalgia and when we want our own nostalgia catered to as well. So it's a really interesting discussion and it really is from 
I mean, like all of our podcasts is from our perspective and our bias towards these stories. But I think especially this one uh, really is very deeply rooted in how we came into Star Wars and our bias and and the things that we love about this franchise. So I think um, we're really hoping that in the next episode to be able to go over all of your answers and kind of, I don't know, see what patterns, see what um, outliers there are. I don't know. We're just really excited to hear all of your perspective because I think star, uh, nostalgia and Star Wars is such um, an, an interesting topic <laughs> depending on who you're talking to. So we would really love to know your responses. So it will be included in the show notes. Like I said, they're most mainly yes or no questions. It's anonymous. Every question, no question is required to fill out the survey. So uh, fill out what you want. And uh, we, we're really excited to talk about the results on our next episode. Yes. So in this episode, we are going to, in part one, define nostalgia In part two, we'll talk about the pros of nostalgia. And in part three, we talk about the cons. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Welcome to part one, where we're going to be talking about nostalgia in, you know, the general terms and kind of break down what the concept is. And so as with most of our themes like this, we're going to define it for you. (laughs) So this is the definition of nostalgia. It's taken from Wikipedia if you want to read along. (laughs) Nostalgia, quote, nostalgia is a sentimentality for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. The word nostalgia is learned formation of a Greek compound consisting of Nostos, meaning homecoming, a Homeric word, and algos, meaning pain or ache, and was coined by a 17th century medical student to describe the anxieties displayed by Swiss mercenaries fighting away from home. Described as a medical condition or a form of melancholy in the early modern period, it became an important trope in romanticism. And there is so much wrapped up in that definition there the way that we traveled all the way from ancient greece through like a medical student and swiss mercenaries like we traveled a lot (laughs) in this definition but what kind of jumps out at you actually reading you know a a, like a webster's dictionary definition of nostalgia um i think it's it's interesting because to me reading a webster's dictionary i'm like Ah, yes, that makes sense. There is a sentimentality for the past, and I do enjoy partaking in that sentimentality often. And I do think that it's interesting where we talk about, you know, formation of words, this idea of nostalgia being wrapped up with the word pain and ache, while also being a form of melancholy, which again, was wrapped up in a medical condition that was, uh, really romanticized by romantic poets like Keats and Shelley and um, et cetera. And I think that it's it's interesting as you dig into these things because there's upsides to everything, including melancholy, including, ex- I guess, not anxiety, but <laughs> I think, <laughs> like, uh, relatable. I think it is a loaded term. Yeah, I think it is, too. I think the thing that stood out for me most in this kind of definition was the the emphasis on happy personal associations. And mm. I think that kind of leads this whole discussion, right, that nostalgia is very personal. It's your personal association to a thing or a time and for many of us like especially in like our generation child of like the millennial generation of like a particular type of media and that's kind of what we're talking about 
like this whole thing. Like Star Wars is the perfect example of it because it touches on so many generations that everyone's version of nostalgic Star Wars is different. And this is what we often talk about with like our uh, relationship to the second trilogy or the prequel trilogy is like, that's, that's what we're nostalgic for. And you're kind of starting to see that conversation, I think, and like commentary on Star Wars. And it's been happening for the past couple of years, of course, but more and more people. And I think even creators are kind of realizing just how important this is that like not everyone is nostalgic for the same kind of star wars just like Mm -hmm. not everyone is nostalgic for the same kind of like childhood media whatever Mm -hmm. it is and i think that that personal association is is really important and yeah like you said it was it was just kind of romanticized to a really like a like a ton <laughs> it mm-hmm. almost kind of reminds me of the concept of the f- sublime in a weird way like we saw that in the romantic period as well and just this kind of like these contrasting emotions about things I think is really what I mean of like something that is both happy and like a warm memory but right. on the flip side it also comes with this longing and like that melancholy that I think these are going to be words that it's like you can tally how often we're going to say them in this episode because they're going to come up a lot. Right. And I think that that's you hit the nail on the head about talking about romanticism because that's all that romanticism is really about is, you know, reflecting on death and then also and like autumn and uh, th- things that are past and thinking about how they're dead, but they're actually alive because they live on through poetry. And how can you experience something by sitting under a tree as your friends go for a walk while you, ex- you will you experience it by writing a poem about it, even though you're not there. And that in itself is melancholic. And I think that it's it's all these dichotomies wrapped up into it where you know you can talk about life and death in both uh, grand terms in 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 a positive and a negative sense and i honestly feel like you can do the same about nostalgia and all these things are kind of wrapped up together as we understand like this human puzzle of how we navigate our own emotions and how we experience the world. I think that there's in in this Wikipedia article cuz yeah we're we're talking Wikipedia. We um they talk about the functions and I think this is interesting and I I listed this here because I do think it's interesting. Nostalgia improves mood, increases social connectedness, enhances positive self-regard, provides existential meaning, it provides comfort, and it also promotes psychological growth because then you're able to reflect on pieces of yourself that you perhaps have forgotten or that you want to connect with again in order to move on or in in order to cope in order to have comfort. And I think that the the line prom- promoting psychological growth is interesting because it it does. When you when you're able to reflect on something that you connected with in the past and think about how that informed who you were or who you are today, I think that that does inform growth. So nostalgia in this way really is a double-edged sword of can you be lost in the past? Or can you take these things and, wow, this is so Star Wars, and move forward? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, too, about nostalgia is that it can be revisionist. This whole discussion of nostalgia, it it really just kind of makes me think about You know, when people talk about the golden age or golden era, right, Uh, you know, things were so much better way back when in in a certain time frame. And I think the thing that I think of most is the 1950s. I think that American history and media has 
kind of portrayed the 1950s as this golden age, right, where we've got the expansion of suburbs around the country and everyone has a car now and dad goes to work and mom stays at home and vacuums and pearls, right? And it's this very, I think we'll talk about this a lot throughout this episode, but like the idea of rose colored glasses on the past when that's not always really the case. Like I think that um, people talk about the fifties in this very like nostalgic way and how things were better back then with poodle skirts and and all of those things. But that's not true. (laughs) That wasn't um, the reality of what a lot of people were living through. And especially in America, not only, you know, were there huge racial tensions in the fifties and and leading into the sixties with the civil rights movement, but that was so, um, we were only looking at America when the rest of the world was going through so much as well. And the fifties were a very turbulent time globally, but Media, nostalgic media often doesn't give you that side of things. And I think that that's really important for our discussion of nostalgia as a whole is is understanding that it's painting a very specific point of view about a, a time period and that a lot of the times the things that make us feel good about nostalgia are going to be purposely leaving out a lot of the realities of um, just how dark a lot of these time periods were, you know? Yeah, completely. I mean, I think there's that the whole saying about history is told by the victor. So then you don't necessarily see this other side of things. Mm -hmm. And then you go back into who's telling these stories about holding up the 50s. It's people who are, you know, living their idyllic childhood or something during this time period or people who have enough privilege to tell these stories. And I think that it it always comes down to that where the idea of rose-colored glasses really like you got to take off the glasses, right, <laughs> and yeah. see what's really there, or put on better glasses that aren't rose-colored. Yeah, I think a big part of of it too is just having awareness of what these stories are doing, and that's hard as a kid <laughs> watching these things when you're just not as aware because you're you know 10 years old or however old you are watching these. But I think it's important in the grander scheme of this discussion of nostalgia to make sure that you recognize and just understand um, who is telling these stories and what their perspective was when they were telling it and what their goals are too. Um, what like What is the point of the story that they're telling? Is it solely for nostalgic purposes or is there something else going on there it's different for every story uh, every creator i was going to say story maker but i guess, like filmmaker or or author or something like everyone everyone has a bias everyone has a lean and i think being aware of that is super important Part of the conversation that Charlotte and I were talking about with this whole theme of nostalgia was we had seen a video essay from Lindsay Ellis from, when was this from, like two years ago or something? It it wasn't like recent. But she talks about the topic of nostalgia and she talks about the two main definitions of nostalgia and presents a third one. And I think like as we've kind of been talking about, the topic of nostalgia is kind of Like it's very layered and it has a lot of different expressions in different types of media. And so even like Charlotte and I talking through these definitions, we're like, okay, which is which? And you really kind of have to parse them out. So the two types of nostalgia that have kind of been studied the most are number one, reflective nostalgia, and number two, restorative nostalgia. 
Now, restorative nostalgia is defined that it puts an emphasis on nostos, returning home, which is one of the Greek words we had in the original definition, and proposes to rebuild the lost home and patch up memory gaps. And then reflective nostalgia is an awareness of the idealization and momentum of the desired past. It reflects critically upon its own desires and it highlights possibilities in the past regarding the present, often playfully or with irony. And I know like reading those the first time, I was like, okay, what? (laughs) Because I think it it can be kind of confusing because I think different like films and stuff can use – both of these types of nostalgia and so like the lines I think do get really kind of blurred between them restorative nostalgia I kind of understand as it's a recreation of a very specific time or place kind of what we were talking about with the 50s of you know like happy days is restorative nostalgia it's it's a bit sanitized not a bit it is sanitized and it's giving you It's like pulling up all the highlights. It's like a highlight reel of the 50s (laughs) with how they dress and and a lot of what's going on. Whereas reflective nostalgia is, again, as as I'm understanding it, is it it shows you – like it's a conversation about how we remember things like within the media. And I think that Lindsay talks about Stranger Things in a really good way in regards to reflective nostalgia and how, you know, it takes you back to the 80s and like they all look like they're from the 80s and they talk like they're from the 80s and the technology is all from the 80s. But um, there are things that aren't the same, obviously. And and that is the conversation with like how race is treated and gender and, and things like that within Stranger Things. That's like we that it's modern the way that those things are presented but then the setting of it is all very nostalgic with the 80s i want to read a quote from this article about how nostalgia media keeps looking towards the past and again we'll link this we'll cite all of our sources in the description here's the quote quote but when it comes to more popular reflective nostalgia when is it used right and when is it used wrong From all indications, the method lies in how far producers are willing to go in depicting nostalgic iconography and references in their own work, ranging from a simple homage to depicting ideas and objects from pre-existing stories to their entirety. There are extremes to both, and these approaches and the the result and quality can be quite clear. This definition is honestly so frustrating because, like, this is Star Wars, and Uh it's just a matter of (laughs) what works for some viewers and what doesn't. I think that you can kind of see an aggregate, and that's why we want data, hashtag fill out our survey, of (laughs) what is working for people and what isn't. But I think – all of us, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're arguably a Star Wars fan. I'd be surprised if you weren't. And if you aren't, please tell me um, and you're listening. <laughs> but this idea of depicting nostalgic iconography, like how many behind the scenes featurettes have we seen where that is all they are talking about. I mean, even Clone Wars spoilers, if you're not caught up, but even at the end of Clone Wars with Vader's helmet, immediately the conversation was, okay, what does that helmet look like specifically? What color are your eyes? What suit are we working with here? You know, like this, I can, and and even with like the Mandalorian of talking about these characters having a specific silhouette, it's, it's something identifiable immediately. And I think every person who's been involved in Star Wars, even in the original trilogy, have talked about the sets and and things having a very specific look and then pulling on that set. And does it feel Star Wars? I mean, Ralph McQuarrie is the nostalgic iconography and references for 
everything that comes out of Star Wars. And so it like Star Wars is such a different beast when it comes to this topic because it's more than just uh, hearkening back to an era, to a, a time period or a decade. That's like an entire world. And what the 50s looked like in the United States is different than what the 50s looked like in like France or Germany. You know what I mean? And so there is... It's like a broader stroke, I think, when we're when we're looking at that. But to have an iconography and reference that's so specific to a franchise and a world that doesn't exist, <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. And the way that producers and directors and storytellers have gone about um, using these references for Star Wars in the future is really admirable because that's a really hard job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Star Wars itself and what you're getting at is that we know, we've talked about this, Star Wars has its own language, Star Wars has its own iconography, Star Wars has its own history. And the ability to draw on that in it, in itself is nostalgic, but it's also part of the job of crafting in the universe. So again, here we go with a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. Of how much can you draw on something and how much can you create something new? And what are those lines? Does it have to be 50-50? Do you just have to go with your heart? Do you want to create something new? If you if you do, will it be received from by fans? Do fans really just want to be comforted when they're sitting in their seats in the, the movie theater or on their couch watching a TV show? Do they want to be pushed artistically? And all these things you have to balance, right? Because you still have to live in that familiar space of Star Wars, which in itself is inherently nostalgic, right? Here's this other quote from the same article that says, but when it comes to people's childhood, present it to them in a manner that does that it and them justice. For all the looking back we're doing, we need to show those historians that it wasn't just because we had nothing to offer. End quote. It really comes back to this idea that nostalgia can't purely be the backbone of creation, especially in media. It just can't. Because if we, from our own, it just has to be personal and it can't just be a, a, a reflection of what we liked before, just because that felt comfortable. We have to be pushed out of our comfort zones, but also have that comfort in it because it has to be mass marketable like Star Wars is. And I think that's that's what's tough, right? Yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> frustrating. I can't imagine trying to toe that line. <laughs> And I'm sure that's what they have to deal with every single day is this idea of creating something new while also fitting it in the universe. And how do we recreate that Star Wars feeling with it still be- being fresh and new? And I think the way you do that is to have people from all different parts of the world and all different parts of access points in Star Wars, again, something we talk about so often on this show, bring in their own nostalgic elements because inherently part of the storytelling creation process with Star Wars is going to be your own story because art is personal, right? It has to be or else Mm -hmm. why are we engaging in it? It has to say something and it has to say something from the heart. It has to say something from the writer, the the director, the studio, which whatever, right? You can talk about whether that should be personified, but again, it has to be personal and that personal that ability to to engage in the nostalgia of one person I think is I don't know it has to be replicated somehow yeah how can you replicate everyone's personal association and happy memory of the first time they saw Star Wars right 
that's the question. It, you know, it kind of reminds me in a weird way of this like macro and micro example within Star Wars of Dave talking about the last season of Star Wars or of Clo- the last season of Star Wars. What is that? <laughs> um, the last season of Clone Wars. And I can't remember what interview it was, but he was you know, he was talking really wistfully and kind of in a melancholy tone about what it was like to make the Clone Wars in, you know, 2005 to 2014 and how special that time was to be working with George and the whole crew that they had and everyone was just really close and it was like Star Wars school and film school, I think is how he described it. And then he talks about making season seven of Clone Wars and he's like, you know, it was so great to do it, but it was so different. And, you know, George wasn't here and some of the people that we worked with back then aren't here anymore, but he's still trying to like for Dave, it's like, and of course I'm not putting words in his mouth as if we have like a close relationship and I can do that. But um, it's like trying on a, on a personal sense to go back to this really happy and meaningful time in his life of making the Clone Wars for the first time and getting to finish that story on behalf of George and like on behalf of like himself and, and the whole crew that, that started that story. But then also making sure that it's meaningful for the audience taking it in now. And Clone Wars is such a weird example because people are nostalgic for Clone Wars, even though it hasn't been that long since it went away. But we're we were all nostalgic for it. And but then Dave is like nostalgic for his own personal experience in making it and then also seeing it through to this conclusion that had been decided by him and his mentor <laughs> of so many years. You know, there's so much wrapped up in these stories and in a lot of ways, you can almost be really cynical about it. Like these things are doomed from the start because you can't please everyone. And uh, something like Star Wars just hits so close to home. And because it does, it does find a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us in our childhoods, there's just a lot of emotion put on that. And with as far reaching as it is, it's, it's, nearly impossible to do (laughs) yeah so the fact that we have successes in this whole thing like the fact that star wars still exists honestly (laughs) having to play within you know this quote-unquote sandbox it's like the borders are still the same and the landscape is still the same but like i don't know i think that's that's why media that's why something like Star Wars can work, though, is because it has this foundation and this skeleton of what this world can look like. But and a lot of what I think of with nostalgia, kind of, I automatically think of the visuals of a place and how a film looks. But with something like entertainment and media and Star Wars in particular, a lot of that nostalgia is also the themes that come that are like baked into that franchise. And for Star Wars, that's like hope and family and compassion and like love. And so if those things are being portrayed in this kind of skeletal framework of what we recognize from the past, from like even the recent past, then it's, it, it should still work. Right. Mm. Yeah. I, I think it's hard, right? Because it can't be a recreation, you know, it has yeah. to be, a a mirror, a poetry, a, a rhyming of certain things and themes like you describe, like love and can't be the same thing. But sometimes it can be. And that's when nostalgia can be at play 
And it can be reflective within the story because you're nostalgic for a certain part of the story. And it's it's very meta. <laughs> very meta. Yeah. I think, you know, because Star Wars can't be – like Star Wars can't have the kind of restorative nostalgia the way that a 50s film can in like – or a film set in the 50s can because none of us have obviously been to a Star Wars universe and you know unless unless you're in galaxy's edge um which no one is right now (laughs) (laughs) oh hard i'm sorry (laughs) but it's like it does have to be that kind of set piece design is the restorative piece of it but also star wars takes us through its own timeline too so like, that's what we talk about with, like, the High Republic of, you know, going back to something that's maybe more similar to the setting and design of the prequel trilogy as opposed to the original trilogy. Whereas, you know, in, in like, Rebels and stuff, there's so, there's so much time that is spent talking about moving certain design elements close, like, away from a Revenge of the Sith aesthetic into an A New Hope aesthetic. And then we see that, too, in the sequel trilogy of things being more reflective of the original trilogy aesthetic rather than the prequel trilogy aesthetic because of where these things happen in the timeline. I think it's I think you saying the High Republic is an interesting example because there's a certain amount of nostalgia that goes into the creation of the High Republic especially in that uh, that presentation that they did uh, a couple months ago about the books that were coming out now later next year or early next year about this uh this this nostalgia for a time between Star Wars films where all we had were books mm-hmm. and yeah. Then there's also this part of they used concept art and they had I can't remember oh now is, is it Ian McCaig who did the concept art? I think so. We could uh, be yeah. Wrong. Let us I could be wrong. completely wrong about that, and I'm not speaking. I don't have that in front of me. But regardless, awesome concept art was was created for it in this almost nostalgic sense because that's how things were made before, you know. And then we even feel a nostalgia for uh, the Jedi, right? We. Mm-hmm. We want to know more, um, but we don't know this type of Jedi. But at the same time, like when we see concept art of something that looks like the Jedi Spire of the temple, we're like, wow, that's cool. I'm nostalgic. I want to I want to discover more about that, you know, and I think that it's not always 100 percent nostalgia that drives that. Of course, it is intrigue. It's interest. It's um, I don't know. It's a lot of things going on. Right. But I do think that it's part of it, even though I think that the concept of the High Republic, separate from everything else, is different. But the creation of something like this is, I think that Star Wars creating will always be wrapped up in nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of it kind of has to be, especially when you think, and like, I think that's really great that you brought up the concept of, not the concept, but like how the legends era and the legends books like drove this this community in you know the quote-unquote dark ages (laughs) and like that nostalgia aspect of it is automatic because there was such a great breadth of time between the original trilogy and the second trilogy so people had time to grow up and remember their childhood with star wars (laughs) before the prequels came out (laughs) and Mm -hmm. 
and now it's like all the people because I there are a lot of people that came into Star Wars through the Legends books and so now yeah. coming back to this like whole period that is going to be defined by books first is really cool and not something I'd really considered I think until we started talking about it now um yeah, I think like the whole topic of the Jedi is really interesting when you were talking about it because it's like I think we're all kind of nostalgic for a type of Jedi we've never actually seen, mm-hmm. a type of Jedi order we've never actually seen. And this is, I think, what you hear a lot of people who are from like fans from the 70s and 80s with the films and with Legends canon of um, being able – like getting ready for the second trilogy and being so excited about seeing the golden age of the Jedi and seeing them, you know, be these great warriors. And then that's not what the story was ever meant to be. And so, but we're all still waiting for that, right? I think even like those of us who aren't a product of the 70s and 80s Star Wars, we're all still kind of very interested in what that Jedi Order looks like because these stories have given us so many hints about them um, in different mediums. And so, we're all nostalgic for something that doesn't even exist yet because it's been baked into so many different pieces of canon. Because Ben Kenobi himself was nostalgic for it. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how, how are we not to be nostalgic for something? Because that's our first entry point. The first time we hear about for a lot of people, right? That was the first time uh, timeline wise in terms of release order that we hear about the great Jedi from before the Clone Wars and everything that came before. So of course we're going to be nostalgic for it, you know, because we, we still haven't really experienced it. How are we nostalgic for something that hasn't happened yet? It's amazing because we have such a response to the characters that we are nostalgic for. Yes. I think there's something also interesting that we can talk about since we're talking about the creation of Star Wars Star Wars in itself is a pastiche of George Lucas's own nostalgia. And I think that we can't slide by by just talking about Star Wars of now without realizing that Star Wars, you know, incorporated movies that George was super interested in in his childhood. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that all of these things come from a place of nostalgia, of feeling comforted by the television set, of being excited by films by growing up and learning and diving deep into his anthropological studies and all these things right Mm -hmm. and I think that all of those are present in the types of movies he has in tv shows that he has chosen to to be inspired by for star wars I think a lot of people talk about how there's a 30-year cycle of nostalgia and this is something I think that fans talk about a lot about Someday, you know, we're going to have people who are nostalgic for the sequel trilogy because this was their entry point creating Star Wars because Star Wars will never end. And I'm I can't wait to see what that looks like. Right. Because I I'm just really excited by the idea of um, different entry points and different storytellers within Star Wars. I, I just think it keeps it fresh like we've been talking about. But there's this idea of the 30 year cycle of being when you become a filmmaker and you look back on you know, 30 years before, um, usually your said age that you can look back and be nostalgic about your childhood, and that childhood is 30 years before. And that's what George was coming into with the creation of Star Wars, right? He was nostalgic for the period of the 50s, and you see that often in American Graffiti, right? These are the kind of things that he was inspired by in his filmmaking, and it really informs who George Lucas is as a creator. So, of course, nostalgia in itself is baked into it because, of course, it is because filmmaking is personal, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that that classic piece of advice of write what you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what you know is what you experienced and what you like what spoke to you the most and inspired you the most as a kid. And for authors, it's certain books. And for filmmakers, it's certain film. Like it's these different pieces of media and uh, entertainment and experiences that that you had as a child and growing up, the, your quote unquote formative years, <laughs> they're, mm-hmm. they're important <laughs> for where things are headed in the future. So yeah, I think that is a really important thing to remember is that it's not just everything after 1983 is nostalgic for that time period. The original trilogy was a nostalgic on its own for different things. And it was, it was, it was the nostalgic for, like you said, the things that George Lucas had in his childhood and was reflective on, but it it really did kind of recreate it in a new way, obviously, with Star Wars. Like, of course, Caitlin, <laughs> that's why it's as important as it is, is because mm-hmm. it was able to kind of do both uh, pretty perfectly <laughs> to kind of take these elements and themes from you know, that he was imitating this pastiche that he was creating, but also put put it in a new world and in a new format that hadn't been seen before so that it kind of, it, it's firing on all cylinders in the best way. It's lightning in a bottle. That's, you know, that's the Star Wars story. Yeah. And I think that this is something that Star Wars creators are chasing constantly is finding that lightning in a bottle that that pastiche mixed with nostalgia that is an audience pleaser, but not always an audience pleaser. But let's be honest, there's a money-making element around Star Wars in general that will always be present because, again, that is also tied up in Star Wars. So um, making appealing to our audience <laughs> and, you know, tickling their fancy in terms of nostalgia and their own nostalgia uh, – is a priority. And I think that's where we get into the conversation about fan service, which was inevitably going to be brought up in this conversation. Fan service actually gets its start as the term in Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is a Japanese anime that had one season, ran for one year. And in this term, fan service really means like showing sexy images. And I think this is an interesting thing. I, I highly recommend listening to the Imaginary Worlds podcast called Ends of Evangelion about it, even if you haven't even seen the show, have no idea what I'm talking about. It is a fascinating journey about fandom creation, uh, psychology of directors. Highly recommend it. I'll link it. It's great. Yeah, it's uh, so, 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 so good. I actually want to re-listen to it now that we've come to the end of the Skywalker saga. The episode itself actually deals with endings and uh, fan outrage and um, personal choices made for an artist and how fandom can either respect that or not respect it and what that means going forward for the franchise. It's really fascinating. But in Western culture, I think we all know that fan service really means giving like creators giving fans what they want. And uh, being very aware of the fandom, being aware of what's popular and delivering it in the text. And often this is harmful. We know this, right? We know that this is harmful. Um, But sometimes you want it because that's why it's fan service because you're a fan and you want to 
experience like what you want, right? And <laughs> yes. it's, it's hard because again, <laughs> going back to this idea of uh, Star Wars being a moneymaker, <laughs> mm-hmm. you want to give the fans what they want so they, they buy your products. And it's it's all part of it, you know? And I think that sometimes fan service has to do with nostalgic elements. Mm-hmm. I think that fan service and nostalgia can be pretty conflated and often is in conversation with each other, but not always meaning the same thing within Star Wars and Star Wars fandom discussions. Yeah, and I think it's like like we've been saying, it's different for everyone. You know, something that's fan service for you is not fan service for me. For me, that's a really important thing to show. And this is what we talk about with Star Wars too. It's like we all have different things in Star Wars. Like for some people, it's the ships. For other people, it's you know the you know for for us, like we're nostalgic for weird force stuff. For other people, they're nostalgic for like the types of ships that are being used and shown and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things or or being excited about those things. But you know, for me, it's like if I. Like if there's like if I feel that there's too much of a heavy focus on ships, you know, unless it's the Colossus, in which case, like, give me everything. (laughs) See, it's like if I think that it's leaning too heavily in one way, that's going to impact my personal opinion about things because of my personal association and nostalgia with what I love the most about Star Wars. And, you know, fan service with, you know, like with Neon Genesis, the Evangelion that was a one season situation. And so, but it did, it did have like the, the film came out later, correct? Or was it? Yeah. And so it's like within the series itself, there wasn't that kind of nostalgia because it was only around for one season. You can't be nostalgic for something that's already happened there. That's like in the process of happening. And so that's when like that fan service of giving the creator or giving the fans something that they want is really kind of coming in, to play actually i think that's interesting that you know neon genesis um evangelion in japan is an anime um thing because like with k-dramas and stuff k-dramas are like they're like they're created so quickly they're like 16 episodes for one season as opposed to like american audience or tv shows which are you know multiple seasons and stuff so k-dramas are being created really quickly and they're often still being filmed while they're airing and so if an audience is responding to certain characters in a certain way, then the back half of the TV show can be altered based off of what the fans are responding to Yikes. and what they're talking about. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not in, into them enough, to, like, as they're airing to actually know how much that's happening and when it's happening successfully or not successfully. But um, – like that, like that's more kind of fan service because it's giving them what they want immediately, mm-hmm. and and like that works within the like within like Neon Genesis and like K dramas and and similar pieces of media like that because it's immediate. Whereas with Star Wars, it's like it's it's longer, um, <laughs> you know, with because it's a movie. Like like they're very different different situations right like one's a tv show that's being created in like a in like a three-month period versus a movie that's being created over three years that has 40 years of a specific franchise and world building that is attached to it but in a western world like we've been saying nostalgia and fan service do go hand in hand and even with like western tv shows like i think shipping is kind of the easiest example of this like 
if you've been with a show from season one to season 10 and you want this couple to get together, like, I think that's kind of an easy example of like, when is it going to happen? Like this has like end game, like the whole concept mm-hmm. of shipping end game is in some ways fan service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always. And it like, there are exceptions to every rule and, and, you know, we're being very general about this topic, I think. But I think these are things that come to mind when we're talking about topics like fan service and nostalgia. And it's interesting kind of getting into the differences in like short lived media versus long term media with something like Star Wars. Yeah, I think that that's super interesting about K-dramas. I think that we have to be careful, though, because I don't think that fan service in terms of shipping or anything um, in terms of like TV ser- series are different than films. I really do think that because of the long nature of production. And that's what you're getting at with K-dramas. Don't get me wrong. But I think that sometimes things are are changed because of that. And it's maybe because we're nostalgic for what happened or what we saw in season one or season two and when we're at like season 10. Creator intention too for how a story starts and and we see we see this even in film production though too i think like like in the mandalorian talking about grief they were like oh he was only supposed to be around for one episode or two episodes but we like he got on screen uh carl weathers got on screen and it was magic and we realized i needed to be in the whole thing and so things were reworked and rewritten like like these things nothing is static in any kind of production and things are always changing. And it's just a matter of where that influence is coming from in something like a TV show, whether it's a long run TV show or even a short run TV show where you have fan inputs, basically influence can come from there, but then influence can also come from within the, and does come from within the production itself versus like what's happening day to day, which is not something that was, originally plotted out but became clear as the thing is being created and that can be a good thing or a bad thing and I think like when like with tv shows when you're seeing a fan base respond to something that maybe you didn't even intend or necessarily see on screen yourself but when you see like however many people are watching your tv show and it's like oh everyone is seeing that oh oh, okay, I see it now. And it's like, oh, maybe I, maybe, like, there's something more intriguing here than I initially thought. But like everything, it's like, that's a double-edged sword. And how are you going to balance it? Mm-hmm. Right. I think in this conversation, it's fan service and nostalgia go hand in hand because often fan service is um, given to the nostalgic part of our brain where we want to be going back to our original definition about, you know, the nostalgia's functions about improving mood and um, (laughs) giving yourself some, a pat on the back for remembering that or getting that inside joke or living through that period, right? Mm -hmm. The sense of comfort that you get when you tap into this part of your brain that perhaps you've forgotten or you just really like to revisit because it gives you warm fuzzies. I think that that, the idea of warm fuzzies is also a huge nostalgic thing or, I mean, who can relate to, you know, smelling something and being brought back to that instance when you were five years old and, you know, we're in your teacher's classroom or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we scent um, as well as sight. I think all these senses really come into play um, when it comes to nostalgia. 
Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Caitlin, with Star Wars in the past two years, have you surprised yourself with what you've become nostalgic for? Mm. I don't think so, <laughs> she said hesitatingly. I think the thing that I was nostalgic for was Clone Wars, I think, because that was my thing. It's weird because I think that I remember – I think right now I would say I'm really nostalgic for season four Rebels, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. because like – Watching that was such a great experience. We recently got the Art of book, which is fantastic. Being in college and like watching that, like that's a very specific time in my life as is watching Clone Wars and like Star Wars Weekends and and all of that. So I think I'm nostalgic for those because of the stories that were presented and like the formative things I was going through at that time in life. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm like nostalgic for – the sequel trilogy quite yet. And I don't, I don't mean that negatively. I just, it's like, we're still in it. So mm. I'm not quite nostalgic. I, I will be, but right now. And, but then I'm like, I'm not nostalgic for rogue one. Um, Isn't that interesting? Cause I'm not either. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if that's because that, like that was a weird time in our life. So maybe that was a piece of it too. Like how mm. much of it is based off of how old we were when we saw it. Um, like that would be interesting, like for people who, who became fans of Star Wars in the sequel trilogy era. And we know a lot of people like that. Um, are they nostalgic for Star Wars? Like, are they nostalgic for the last Jedi era or the Force Awakens era? Or are they like, it's all still really new. So it's almost like it's, it's not like that component of Star Wars isn't important to them at this juncture right now. I don't know. I'd be really interested to know. But I think that's what – I think, like, that nostalgia is how often, you know, leading up to different releases, we're like, oh, what if we see so-and-so, like, a live-action Ahsoka or, like, even seeing elements of the Mortis gods in Star Wars, like, like in the sequel trilogy, that would just be insane. Like, that would be so cool because we have a really big attachment to Mortis and watching that in Clone Wars for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, but there's also a story element there where we think that it pushes the boundaries creati- creatively. And it's it's weird because I don't think that's all nostalgia no. that we base that upon. However, I think you're, you're onto something when you say you're nostalgic for season four of Rebels, which includes the world between worlds. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, that, that was like when we watched that, you guys know we were off the walls. But I think yeah. that. We're, we're super nostalgic for that feeling. I want to feel that feeling again. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another reason why we want it to appear in, in Star Wars once again, you know? And I think that because we want to tap into that, and it's not just a cool idea, but wow, we experience something when we watch that. But I know? think it's it's too, like... Yeah, it's a story element side of it, but in like the the cre- like the creative side of it too, but that's like our particular brand of Star Wars because we're also we're also chasing the feeling that we had viewing that for the first time. I guess like saying I'm not nostalgic for the sequel trilogy, I think is true, but also I would love to feel the feeling of seeing the throne room scene for the first time again. Mm-hmm. I'd be very, I I get, like, am I nostalgic for that specifically? Like, does nostalgia only happen for an era, like, like a whole season of Clone Wars or of Rebels? 
or a whole trilogy of films or can it be for a moment itself but is the recreation of that moment is that does that run the risk of being fan servicey not nostalgia I think I'm with you to ask myself the same question if I've been surprised by myself for um, what I feel nostalgia for in recent Star Wars years. And I think Solo is something that I feel nostalgic for. And I think it's because it was a comfortable time in my life. And again, this is where the personal bit kind of comes in, you know, and I think that I'm able to view the movie Solo, everyone knows this, with rose-colored glasses because I... I was really happy when we saw it and that entire time period, you know, 2018, we've talked about it. It was a great yeah. time period for us. Yeah. And similarly, that's when Rebel Season 4 came out too. So something yeah. was really in the water there. <laughs> and I think that it's that's where I feel nostalgia. And yes, I do feel nostalgia for the sequel trilogy already. Um, I feel w- huge nostalgia for speculation for The, the Rise of Skywalker but the, is, that, going, is that the same thing as feeling nostalgia for the sequel trilogy or just the like is, is speculation does that fit into nostalgia that's i mean i think that's really interesting i think it does because that's our personal experience caitlin is speculating yeah but it's not necessarily nostalgia for a certain storytelling element even though i am nostalgic for things like feeling what we felt when we watched the throne room scene for the first time. Like you say, I am nostalgic for those certain moments. I'm nostalgic for walking around star Wars celebration, you know, and things like that. I think that it's these certain moments within my star Wars life that kind of inform how I view the media that actually came out around that time too. It's interesting. It, it all is, it's hard the reason why I bring this up is because I think it's hard to talk about, as we've tried, to talk about nostalgia, just nostalgia, without bringing in all these different elements, fan service, pastiche, all these different pieces of what makes this topic interesting, you know, and why it is so personal, why it is so different for each person, and yeah. why why nostalgia is hard to bake into art. Yeah. Because if art is supposed to yield a reaction and someone has an expectation that you are going to be nostalgic for this point because I did as a creator, that expectation can often fall flat. Yeah. It'll. Yeah. Thinking about it, it's like, I think that like initially I was like, well, nostalgia has to be for something that was, you know, not within the past year. Like there has Mm-mm, to be like no. a, a distance from a thing to be nostalgic of it. And I was like, well, see, Rebel season four is far enough away. But then when you were like solo is what you're nostalgic for. I'm like, well, was that far enough away? And then I'm like, wait, that was the same year. <laughs> and I was like, maybe it doesn't. But I think the whole thing is is interesting because – I feel like there will be this paradigm shift of nostalgia in the next like 10 to 15 years because, I mean, that was the whole mid 20th century was a rejection of the past. You look at like architecture is kind of the best example of that. And the architecture of the of the mid 20th century is a complete rejection of the past. It's saying like it's like we've had enough of that, whereas like I'm sorry, this is like a bit of an architecture spiel, but like you look at historic architecture and you have things like 
um, classical architecture. And then like as you're going through the like the 18th and 19th centuries, you basically have these different revivals. So we have things like Greek revival, colonial revival, neoclassical. That's like different interpretations of past architectural styles. And like even in the 40s, you have things like English vernacular, which is a play on kind of that very romantic English cottage from the UK. <laughs> like, but it's it's very specific. And of course, it's different in different areas of the US too. And that's kind of the most of what I know about. But then when you get to the 50s and like the ranch house and things like brutalism and um, like skyscrapers and, and stuff like that and like the modern city and uh, like futuristic architecture too, that's all a response. Like what you're saying, like art has to be evocative and um, and uh, like elicit a emotional reaction to it. And for a lot of people, like eliciting that childhood warm, fuzzy emotion is really good. But like in the 50s and 60s, in architecture, it was like, no, we're rejecting all of that. We don't want it to look anything like what came before. That warm fuzzy is is almost like it's it's too much and it's not real. And so you had this complete 180 away from that. And I think that I think that like there will be waves of that too as far as media creation because I think it's a fair assessment to say that like right now with like things like reboots and like sequels and prequels to all of these different franchises, like we're kind of drowning in nostalgia, I think right now, kind of overall. And again, like there are good and bad parts of that, but there is this, like we're all kind of vying for this piece of our childhood or this, like what you're saying, this warm, fuzzy feeling, whatever that looks like for you, you want to see it expressed somewhere. But I think we will get to a point relatively soon where there might be a move away from that just because it's it feels so uh, intense right now. Like there's so much of it right now. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And I, the warm fuzzy feeling definitely can be destructive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's – it's interesting because – when you talk about the reboot culture that we're in right now, I think that everyone is trying to is vying for the cash grab. Number one, I think that that's definitely on studios' mind. Maybe not creators, but it's the reason why things are greenlit because there's a comfort there. Yeah. But then also, as a creator, I think that people are racing to try to say something different about what came before and how can you revisit that while also eliciting the same response that you did with the first one. And the same or maybe even bigger, right? Yeah. (laughs) But then when you work inside this same world, like talking about like TV shows and films, when you work inside this same world, you're it's like you're at it's almost like you're asking for it to be harder on yourself by having to as a creator to both say something new, but then also make sure that like you're getting that feeling of whatever that thing was originally. Yeah. I don't envy the I don't envy creators now. I really don't because I think it is so so difficult to capture that to capture yeah. that lightning in a bottle to uh, be like I felt this. Do you feel this? You know. I think honestly, if you boil it down, storytelling down to that, it is mm-hmm. this is how I feel about something. Do you guys agree with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that, or did you feel this too? And if you didn't, it's okay. But I need you to know that I felt this. Yeah. And. I think that it's sometimes that comes from a place of nostalgia. Sometimes it comes from a place of new creation and all these things are relevant and all these things don't necessarily make poor storytelling either. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, I think we've talked around Star Wars as much as we possibly can. Is yeah. there anything that we else we need to say in this part one section before we dive into the pros of nostalgia? I think uh, the only thing I would add in is that we haven't really talked about them a lot, but within this whole conversation, two is or are Easter eggs. Easter eggs like sit very comfortably in between nostalgia and fan service, I think. So just know that we know that they exist and um, I'm sure we'll get into them a little bit in the next two sections too. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so welcome to part two. We're going to be discussing the pros of nostalgia. So I think that we had to, we covered this before. We all want to feel nostalgic. I think feeling nostalgic is a great feeling. When it's tapped into, you don't want to leave this warm, fuzzy blanket of emotions, of you know, going down that YouTube hole of listening to TV show songs that you thought that you forgot. I think that we've all done something like this, right? Mm-hmm. Of you know, there's even a whole industry about like remember when, all these things. There's <laughs> we all love that feeling. So when it happens in Star Wars, it's it can be great, you know? I think that we also just really love to be a part of the cultural zeitgeist, to tap into something that we all felt. That's why memes are so popular. The popularity of memes is so interesting to me. I could go on and on about this for a while, but there's memes need to be relatable. And if they're not relatable to you, they're relatable to a million other people, you know? Yeah. A certain meme isn't necessarily for you, but then you look at the likes on Instagram and you're like, wow, this was for a hundred thousand other people, you know? <laughs> and I don't relate to this, but they do. And there's always this this relatability in memes are often tap into the nostalgia of it all, right? As well. Mm-hmm. Um I think that we all want to be part of a, a culture, a zeitgeist, a something that we've all collectively felt. Well, it kind of you know, it's like it's like Captain America in whichever movie that was where he's like I got that reference. And he feels really good about it. <laughs> like, we all want that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and it feels super good. And I think because, as we've discussed, Star Wars is a pastiche. It is built upon layers and layers of filmmakers, of creators, who are all reflecting on what came before it. It is just part of Star Wars. It's how it's going to be. That Let's talk about some of our favorite pieces of nostalgic uh interference within Star Wars storytelling and whether or not it works because it serves the story and the characters or if it serves the audience or if it does both. And Mm -hmm. I think that when it does both is when it hits that sweet spot and it can be considered a pro. Yeah. Well, I think and and part of this conversation too is almost I feel like we need to just give like a tiny bullet list of our bias. Like – Charlotte, and a lot of you listening know our Star Wars story, but it's almost like, like, because it's so subjective and Charlotte and I have not the same, but very similar Star Wars experiences. Um, But Charlotte saw all of the prequel films in theaters. I did not. Um, But we both became obsessed with Star Wars circuit like really obsessed circa 2005 to 2006 (laughs) and we're Clone Wars people and like in that time we were in middle school we were middle school girls obsessed with the prequel trilogy (laughs) after it had already come out and um, yeah (laughs) not a yikes (laughs) and um we love all of star wars and we followed the animated shows as they came out both 
Clone Wars and Rebels and Resistance and that we never read Legends. Um, Charlotte has read some of them, but we're not like, we never read them obsessively. Um, So that's not really a part of our fan vernacular, I would say, or of our fan experience as Star Wars fans. Um, Not a huge piece of it anyway. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like that's important to know where we come into all of this because I would be interested to know all of your answers too. Hashtag fill out our survey. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have the survey because yeah. we come at it from a certain lens. Usually it's, it's – Yeah, and we come at it from together too. Like our Star Wars story more or less begins together. Mm-hmm. And it's not – for a lot of people, their Star Wars fandom exists entirely online. And that is a very specific type of fandom. And, and th- that's like how they came into it too. For other people, it's through the books and like through book clubs or, or even through things like fanzines and and fan fiction and different avenues like that. For us, it was like just the two of us <laughs> for a long time and like no one else. <laughs> so we were the only people we were talking to about Star Wars, a very small pool of ideas. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, that's, that's my spiel. <laughs> so the things that we consider pros are our pros. Yeah. That's that's it right? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So the number one thing that I think is probably my favorite example of nostalgia being used to serve the story uh, well and well done in Star Wars is when R2-D2 tries to get Luke to leave Octo in The Last Jedi by showing Princess Leia's recording. I think it works perfectly because as an audience member, we are very nostalgic for that original recording. We've heard it a thousand times, right? Mm -hmm. And I think to hear this point where even our character is nostalgic for it, right? I think that that's that's where it works here because if Luke has been the hero character that we are supposed to see ourselves as, when Luke has an emotional response to Princess Leia's hologram, we also have an emotional response. It doesn't just serve the audience, it serves the story. Because what's interesting about this moment is that it's not enough. The nostalgia is not enough to get Luke to leave. And at least in that moment, it's not. And I think that it's it's just masterfully done. And that's, of course, my opinion, because it serves the story. Yeah. I mean, it is enough to get him to train Ray in that moment. But I think, yeah, that's... This moment is so fascinating because it does work really well within the story. It's reflective or it's it's restorative. Like R2 is literally using this restored memory that's been locked away in his storage of, of Leia coming through. And it's the thing that propelled Luke's story in A New Hope. And it this is the thing that propels him to the next step in The Last Jedi too. But it's a completely different situation but it's still like they're parallel right because like in a new hope he was stranded he he felt he felt emotionally and he felt physically trapped on Tatooine. in on octo he's he has physically trapped himself there but he's also like emotionally trapped right mm-hmm. <laughs> and um r2 and this combination of r2 and the leia hologram is what motivates him and I think that's really beautiful I what I am really interested to to see and we won't know this for a long time is how this scene 
is responded to by future generations watching The Last Jedi because this is also like we all are watching this knowing it's Carrie Fisher's last performance. And so there's that emotional weight too as an audience specifically in 2017 watching this film in theaters for the first time. So I will be really interested to see how this particular piece of nostalgia plays to future audiences. Yeah. And of course, just we can't mention, we can't not mention the fact that Ryan didn't know that when he planned that and he, mm-hmm. he wrote that scene and everything. It's just the way that it worked out. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's, which is awful, but it is a way that we respond to the scene because we are wistful for that time when Luke was coaxed off of, of Tatooine by a beautiful figure. Mm-hmm. Coaxed off is such a nice way of putting family murdered. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it, but I didn't. <laughs> Here for you. <laughs> okay, so our next uh, good piece of nostalgia is the twin sons in Revenge of the Sith and Attack of the Clones. This, too, is, of course, the setting of Tatooine. It's where we meet Luke. It's where he has the, you know, the moment that I think so many of us uh, really relate to. It's it's my all-time favorite moment in Star Wars is that moment from A New Hope. But seeing it in Revenge of the Sith and Attack of the Clones, and I think Revenge of the Sith, for me, is the one that stands out more just because of what it means and the the structure of it within the story obviously at the very end of the film it's hopeful for the future which is actually the past Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's hopeful for the future within star wars but it's nostalgic for the past that we've already seen and know what's to come it's again as i say a million times it's the weird thing of how star wars is made but I think the piece of it within Revenge of the Sith that is also very indicative of just how nostalgic that feels, watching Owen and Beru with baby Luke look off into the twin sunsets in the very same kind of stance that Luke will 25 years later or 20 years later. Um, it's that that golden hue because it is sunsets. We talk about nostalgia as viewing things through rose-colored glasses and like the golden age, the golden hour. Like these, It's a very beautiful time and so even giving it visually that golden cue elicits a warm feeling in you and there's something um very like comforting about that whole scene at the end even in the midst of everything that has happened in the film revenge of the sith in attack of the clones when we see the the sunsets and everything it it works because we see Luke's parents at the place where Luke wished to leave. And it turns out to be a terrible location for Luke's parents, right? Where Anakin experiences his mother's death, uh, touches the dark side, feels immense regret, um, and is wrestling with the dark side. And I think it's it's a almost a revision of how we view Luke in A New Hope, how we see this ho- almost hopeful stance right at the end of, of Revenge of the Sith, despite the tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think I, Luke staring off into the sunset is the end of adolescence, the, the desire for more. And I think that in this moment with Anakin and Padme in Attack of the Clones, I think the reason why it works for me is because of the story itself and how we're seeing 
um, these parents at the same location that we are familiar with with Luke, but also there's a desire, I think, for Anakin and Padme for for more to happen there. And that more is not possible. That more being finding his mother alive and bringing her back. Mm-hmm. And I think that by ending their trip to Tatooine in tragedy, I think it only continues this idea of Tatooine as a desolate location where nothing good ever happens. Yeah, and I think you look at all three of these of these Tatooine scenes in particular with going, I guess, chronologically and how they were released. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a New Hope, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith. None of the the emotions that the characters have in 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 that stance, right? Looking at the twin sons, like, are any of them happy? I think you like you may be able to read some of that with Owen and Baru, but. It's kind of like an ominous feeling, too, that's kind of the undertone of the whole thing because of, of, you know, Order 66 has just happened. Padme has died. Um, Luke wants to leave that place. Like, he's not happy looking into the twin sons. That The whole point is, like, that longing, that next stage of, of leaving adolescence, like you said. And then with Attack of the Clones, it is – it almost is kind of um, subversive of – people like feeling nostalgic for a new hope and seeing it in this new light like you said of this is the place that you've been before terrible things happened there in a new hope and they're still happening now um even though like this was supposed to be a better time it's actually not and there is that kind of continuation i think between all three moments that we see tatooine in the original saga yeah, and it's all reflective of mm-hmm. a new hope. Yeah, and I think that's wh- that's why it works for me because it isn't doing the same thing. In fact, it is doing different things, but it also involves Luke's parents, so it adds a different layer. And knowing that they'll never be there together. Yeah, it is definitely ominous, and it really does uh, heighten the tragedy of the prequels. Moving on to the next pro of nostalgia within Star Wars. Is an interesting one because I think this, to me, is the brilliance of The Force Awakens. I think The Force Awakens, by removing Luke until the last two minutes of the movie and having Luke be the search, works tremendously well because we're able to introduce new characters and everything. But I think we're nostalgic and where the nostalgia comes in is the fact that we're nostalgic to meet Luke Skywalker again in these new characters. I can't remember the timestamp that Han Solo comes back, but it's pretty late in the movie. I think it might be 30 minutes to 40 minutes, right? And I think that we're, we are chasing that familiarity, that comfort, and we get, obviously, we get comfort from characters that we know. Um, and I think that that's the brilliance of The Force Awakens is that it recognizes that nostalgia element and removes them from the story until absolutely necessary until those characters can comment on the new characters han solo it's great to see han walk onto the millennium falcon and that's a a good example of nostalgia at play but it it felt really good (laughs) it felt really good to see that and the chewy we're home line is i don't know i don't know about you caitlin but i feel really good when i hear that line you know and I feel nostalgic for hearing it for the first time too. Yeah, it is. It is. It is heavy-handed nostalgia, but it's still 
because of like the music and the elation of these things coming together when the force awakens really sets up all of these like these original trilogy pieces being separated and so kind of seeing the puzzle come together is really i think important and is like okay you can be kind of heavy-handed and like give me the glamour shot of han and chewie walking onto the falcon (laughs) you know (laughs) i think i think what works for me and like the chase within the force awakens is really i think the presence of the falcon honestly i think the falcon as like this nostalgic set piece it works really well for the most part within the force awakens because you're having it like the thrill of the chase of the literal chase within the falcon and getting to see these new characters walking around within it i think it it works really well in reminding us of where this thing came from like the actual falcon when we last saw it but getting to do different things within it but you still get thin like in the in the fighter like in the cock not in the cockpit but in the you know where he shoots the gun and it's the, the wobbly chair and everything like that <laughs> and and then like ray in the cockpit and her being like oh i can't reach it because she doesn't have a co-pilot yet i think that i think the falcon works really well for nostalgia's sake within the force awakens yeah i think that the Again, not to beat a dead horse, but the brilliance of The Force Awakens is its awareness of nostalgia. I think some people will say that it is too heavy handed in its, you know, uh, almost copy paste mentality of storytelling elements. But I think it's aware of that. And that's what makes it interesting. And I think that's what makes it entertaining, even, is this idea of restarting uh, that that needed to happen, I think we can all recognize that, that there needed to be a restart and a, a, a return to that time period. And the way to do it is to have new characters interacting within a, a storyline that we're nostalgic for and, and putting a new spin on it. And I think it's really fascinating to discover how it works i don't know if it it worked immediately for me and then i thought about it for like a year afterwards didn't know if it worked that well for me and now i look back on it and i I still think that it was a great way to introduce new characters and have them play in this world and see them shine um and have them react to uh things that we were nostalgic for or people are nostalgic for from the original trilogy and how that sort of revisionist understanding of these characters can propel the plot forward. Yeah, I think that the conversation becomes really interesting, though, when thinking about The Force Awakens as a part of the whole now of the sequel trilogy altogether and the ramifications of what was set up for nostalgia's sake within The Force Awakens being reflected in The Last Jedi and within The Rise of Skywalker. And so it's weird. I honestly haven't really thought about analyzing The Force Awakens post-Tross all too much. Um, and I definitely can't get into it here. <laughs> but I think that that is a really interesting conversation because I think you and I went through like a very roller coaster uh, approach to The Force Awakens because when we first saw it, we were aut- immediately obsessed with it, like 100%. And then it was like, we spent six to eight months thinking about it. And I think we kind of, we were never negative about The Force Awakens, but I think we were, became a lot more critical of it the further out we got from that film. And then I think after The Last Jedi, 
I think we almost like kind of cycled back on our opinion of The Force Awakens and like it fluctuated a lot, I would say. I would say our opinion of The Force Awakens fluctuated up and down a lot more than our opinion of like The Last Jedi. Like Last Jedi, I think, went just like kept skyrocketing for us. Like it's never kind of really come down. Whereas The Force Awakens, it was a little different. And I think a big piece of that for us was how they handled nostalgic elements in Force Awakens because right there like we've talked about their their i wouldn't say pandering because i think that's negative but i like in some ways they were pandering to a specific star wars audience but also like we've talked about that's like wrapped up in the fact that like jj is from that generation himself and so like that is what he's nostalgic for and those are the people with the most money right now and um putting the sequel trilogy after the original trilogy that's going to dictate certain things like there are all these kind of layers working into that. And I think part of our critique was like, I remember saying like, okay, well, like where's some of my nostalgia in that? Like where's some more of the second trilogy in The Force Awakens? I wish there was more of that. There's so much from the original trilogy. What about the things of Star Wars that I also really love? I think we talked about that a lot with The Force Awakens. Um, but I think, like I said, we've kind of cycled in and out of a lot of emotions with that film and gen- are generally now really positive about it, obviously. Um, I love that movie. But I will be – I can see us now having an episode kind of circling back on this topic, but just in regards to the sequel trilogy and if these things are still successful when they're a part of the whole now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I'll – I will always wish that there were more prequel trilogy elements within uh, The Force Awakens, but I think that from the exterior, you can see that they were trying to separate from that time period, which feels Mm -hmm. wholly unfair because by the point I grew up with the prequel, so did you. And we, by the point that the sequel trilogy came up, we were paying customers, you know? (laughs) And I think that it's not, it's hard because I think that they were you're right that they were speaking to a certain nostalgic element but again it it was the time period with within the the movie you mm-hmm. know that they were responding to the original trilogy because you're dealing with original trilogy characters you have no prequel trilogy characters be- besides who you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Tell me and that's why you know palpatine comes back in the rise of skywalker to kind of like gel it you know this is something that we talked about before and why palpatine would come back it makes sense why he would you know at the end of the day it does but then it's like it's almost like i think our critique of trust is that there is a bit of a checklist component to it of oh oh the prequel kids can pay for things now yes yes Um, okay who can we put in um palpatine (laughs) and he's from both trilogies so double whammy (laughs) Yeah, I think that it's 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 just it's all been fascinating to watch The Force Awakens kind of change within history and our perceptions of it, everyone else's perceptions of it. I love how it has kind of changed because I think it is absolutely fascinating to see yeah. how, a, how a movie can and uh, change through time and age and everything. But I think that there's an undeniable understanding that The Force Awakens was restarting something. And whether that meant brushing something under the table probably wouldn't be, have been my choice, but it did have to restart something. And I think that it 
does, I think, at the end of the day, the nostalgic part of The Force Awakens works for me. Because even though I did not live through the films coming out in uh, 1977, 80, and 83, I still um, wanted this continuation of characters that I loved. And I think that by recognizing almost poetic storytelling, it worked, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that it didn't go too far. I think in some instances it, it went too far. But I think as a whole, I didn't walk out of it being like, that went too far. Yeah. I think we almost towed that line later on, though. But then yes. we – like, it, it has been a cycle. The Force Awakens is a really fascinating film kind of on its own, I think. And like I said, it, I think it we totally should do is. a more in-depth analysis on it kind of as a whole. Um Maybe in a couple months, <laughs> kind of further out from yeah, Frost. Yeah, in a couple months. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that, again, we're dancing around is the the fact that The Force Awakens introduced amazing new characters. So them mm-hmm. interacting with these nostalgic elements, we have become these new characters. You know, we can see ourselves yeah. as Rey, as, as Finn, as Poe, as Kylo Ren, all these characters, right? Especially Rey, who is rediscovering this world, something that she has heard about before, but didn't know that much about, but finds herself a part of, you know? Yeah. And I think that brilliance of it all really, really works in The Force Awakens and is also inherently nostalgic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so our next really good uh, element of nostalgia is the ending of The Last Jedi with Broom Boy. (laughs) But more than just Broom Boy, kind of the whole sequence around him, the fact that he's introduced earlier on in the story is important. But then seeing him at the end of it, playing with toy figurines and telling this legend of Luke Skywalker. Um, And then we see him at the very end, use the force to call the broom to him. It's this, it represents a cycle of of like hearing about a legend and then actively participating in it himself and like inserting himself into the story kind of literally by the end of it when he uses the force himself. I think that the cyclical nature that is kind of represented in those very few scenes with Broom Boy is really important and really kind of speaks to the bigger theme of nostalgia altogether is it is nostalgia is talking about a cycle of time of people growing up, remembering something, recreating it um, either in the same, in a restorative way or in a reflective way. And letting people respond to it and the cycle starting over again with the next generation. And I think that it really hones in on what Broom Boy is doing. He's telling the story of the past in a play setting and then becoming a part of it himself too. Yeah, he's participating in it, which is what we all want to do. And that's why we play with toys. That's why we podcast. That's why we listen to podcasts. That's why we read fan fiction is because we want to participate in the story. And I think that this was a brilliant choice by Ryan. I think that he's talked about how, you know, so many filmmakers come into Star Wars by play. He They reflect on playing with action figures. And the cool thing about the scene with Broom Boy is that these action figures with all these kids are homemade and uh, not in a store-bought or anything like that, which I think does speak in some ways to Ryan's kind of anti-capitalist theme of The Last Jedi. And I, and then also, um, we participate in the story. Um, 
at the end of it. And I think that Ryan was is in his way in, in a way, I think Ryan probably thinks of himself as Broom Boy because I think that he thinks that he has been Broom Boy in in within his life. So Well he talks about himself being Rose. I think I think you're right, but what he referen- what he has referenced publicly more, I think, has been the Rose connection, which is tied to Broom Boy too, right? Yeah, is you want to participate in the story. Yeah. And I think that Rose is also a great example of participating in the story because she, you know, is awestruck by Finn, the Finn. Mm -hmm. So lastly, in our discussion about the pros of nostalgia, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Clone Wars and light spoilers for the last uh, four episodes. But the last four episodes, the Siege of Mandalore arc, begin with... Anakin and Obi-Wan on a battlefield and said battlefield recalls nostalgia for Luke in The Last Jedi, for Luke in in Return of the Jedi. The music cues are pretty similar with R2 helping things uh, him out by outsmarting the oppressive force. All these things have happened in in other Star Wars movies in a poetic sense. And we feel nostalgia because we hear the music cues. And I think this is so important because this happens in the last Siege of Mandalore arc. Um, we hear the music cue of Luke <laughs> surprising Jabba the Hutt um, with his lightsaber being thrown from, from R2-D2 in Return of the Jedi. And I think by recreating these moments, it's so perfect because it's Luke's father who does it, right? And then Luke again, has this surprising moment in The Last Jedi. So all these things are reflective. We're nostalgic for these moments of uh, great ingenuity of our characters. And I think that it's it's done so well because it serves the story, This is which, which I keep saying. But um, in The Siege of Mandalore, this happens. But then in the Zygerian arc, there is another moment of the same music cues happening of uh with R2 throwing the lightsaber that's hidden and you know what's happening and you 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 feel it within your brain and it makes you feel really good because you're like yes it's like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where you're like pointing at the TV like yes I see what you're doing and it's so fun to be to participate in this joke and to understand what's happening because it's a different it's a story it's a different story you still don't really know if Anakin and Obi-Wan are going to make it out even though you do it's still the stakes are still high, but you understand this reflective nature. And we're tapping into this, what is probably one of the best scenes in Return of the Jedi, what is probably the best scene in The Last Jedi, but kind of combining them into the character that is supposed to be Luke's father, right? It is Luke's father, not supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Padme? What is it? <laughs> Who knows? Lot twist of the century. It's not Rey that was the Kenobi. It was actually Luke and Leia. <laughs> Yikes. No. <laughs> no. Don't even play. No play. <laughs> Charlotte refuses to see Obidala even after all these years. <laughs> anyway, I think that th- this is a good moment of, personally for me, of feeling nostalgic um, for that crafty move that Luke did in both Return of the Jedi and The Last Jedi. Is nostalgia the same as a callback? Like, are they the same? I don't know, because it's, it's it's also hand-in-hand with fan service. We yeah. want to see Anakin do something awesome like Luke. That's part of the reason why the Clone Wars were made, is we want to see 
Anakin's story to continue so we can see this great figure that was redeemed at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that all of these things are really go hand in hand. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know because sometimes sometimes we're talking about this and I'm like, nostalgia has to ha- be like overarching over a thing. Like Stranger Things, it's all set in the 80s. But then I'm like, some of the things that we're talking about are very specific moments. It's not the whole. It's a piece of the whole. Like the thing with R2, pretty much everything on our, our, on our list within Star Wars are pieces of the whole. It's not the mm-hmm. entire thing. But – there's still, like we talked about at the top of the show, there's still this identifiable language and iconography of Star Wars that was the, okay, so like George Lucas, right, it's a pastiche of, of all the things from his childhood, but he's, like, he created this new way to talk about that pastiche and those themes from the past, right, with Star Wars and in the, like, in the universe and in the world building that he and everyone involved in those films helped to create. And so um, these moments are nostalgic, but they're still within the greater framework of Star Wars itself and with the language. And so having very – almost like having very specific scenes uh, like R2 and Luke on the Millennium Falcon, um, the chase within The Force Awakens and Broom Boy and The Last Jedi and stuff, it's like they still work – because they're all existing in the same universe. I don't know. I It's kind of confusing in my head. And so I'm not sure I explained it well. But I think that within Star Wars, a callback is nostalgia. Yes. it's They go hand in hand. <laughs> they just do. Yeah. It's hard because what you, you use Stranger Things as an example. Stranger Things is nostalgic for a time period. It's a setting. It's a. It's not necessarily the characters' moments. Often it is. Like sometimes it is with them playing Dungeons and Dragons and everything like that. But I think it is really all indicative by the setting. There are certain settings in Star Wars that are inherently nostalgic because we've seen them before. And this goes mm-hmm. back to the level of comfort that we feel. And that's why so many people wish that we saw Naboo again, including myself, because there is a level of comfort and level of nostalgia there of, but also I really, I do think that that could have served the story, you know? And I think there are, there are pieces where as a fan, I'm able to recognize that maybe it's more powerful to go to new places. Maybe it's better to return to something, um, to, to return to something. I don't know. It's, it changes all the time. <laughs> I know because it's subjective too. And it's like, I think sometimes we can, like we'll be talking about the, the ending of Trost in the next section. And I think we can look at that ending and be like, oh, nostalgia doesn't work. Like that's a bad example of nostalgia. But then at the same time, we can be like, oh, but what if they had gone to Naboo? <laughs> You know, yeah, and that's, that's not like, that's it, not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. Um, <laughs> but then, like you and I were like, oh, well, maybe there's like a story element to it, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is also true. But also equally along with the with what what could have been like a, a different kind of story element, there's the elements of it that we love Naboo because of what it represents in Star Wars to us. And so it would have been great to see it. Um, just like for some people, it it was great to see Tatooine at the end of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. It's complicated. It's, it's super complicated. And I think there have been 
Um, some creators, I think I remember a Matt Martin tweet recently talking about how George Lucas was never concerned with nostalgia within Star Wars. And it was something that he actively kind of pushed against with the prequel trilogy in, mm-hmm. in that creation. However, I think that some elements come in and creep in from maybe just expectations. And maybe that has to do with fan service, too, when you see the development of Revenge of the Sith being, you know, perhaps including um Han Solo or Easter eggs like seeing the Millennium Falcon in the bottom mm-hmm. of the screen. All these things. We haven't really even talked about Easter eggs, but I do think they come they come in with fan service. You're not, yeah. you're not necessarily nostalgic for an Easter egg, right? I think that it's but you are nostalgic for elements that come up in Easter eggs, which we'll talk about in the next section. Yeah. I think and, and even with the prequels themselves, this is this is the thing too of of the money issue as well. George Lucas didn't need like he didn't need fans to come and see it. He was paying for all of it himself yeah. and the story he wanted to tell. So he didn't have to cater to any kind of nostalgia because for him that wasn't the important thing. Whereas like we've talked about the Force Awakens, it did need people to pay for it. <laughs> and so there they were investing in what they thought people wanted to pay for which makes sense but it's yeah, still it's a bad thing it's it's, it's not inherently a bad thing no, i think perhaps some people think it is but i think that it's 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 i don't know this whole conversation kind of makes my head spin because it's all like part of a whole and everything is impacted by everything else yeah i think it's also fascinating to consider how time has been kind to Star Wars movies. Specifically, I'm thinking about the prequels right now. I think over time, the prequels have aged really well because we're able to reflect on them as a, as a whole piece and a passion project from George like you were speaking of. And also now we get a, a whole group of people who are nostalgic for it and also nostalgic for the memes too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's all these things wrapped up together where these movies are aging and our perception of them will be kind of constantly in flux, I think, especially as more Star Wars media comes out. And it'll change what we're nostalgic for and what we're not. I think at the end of the day, I will always be nostalgic for basically every single part of Star Wars because it is is so intrinsically intrinsically linked to my life. And I can track certain parts and certain years and dates with where I was in my life. So mm-hmm. it really does become so personal. And I know that people listening kind of feel that way as well. Um, but I think that as from a storytelling perspective, there's you're you're able to take a step back and be like, okay, am I injecting too much of my personal beliefs into a story that I don't know, could be detrimental to uh, and a collective nostalgia right are people going to respond to this or is it just me and sometimes that's okay Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I completely agree I think um yeah I think being able to have the the moment to step back and say I'm responding to this kind of obvious piece of nostalgia in a certain way do I like it do I not and then the other question is, does it work for the story that's being told or is it just nostalgia? In which case, is it just fan service? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. So are we ready to talk about part three? Yes. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. 
always. Okay, welcome to part three, which is the opposite of part two. <laughs> part two was good examples of nostalgia, and part three is bad examples of nostalgia. And as we kind of been touching on throughout this episode of the idea that we're kind of at a moment in time when everything, every, a lot of media is bankrolled by nostalgia in in kind of a very overt way, the, the reboot of it all, <laughs> which Star Wars is obviously a part of itself too. Um, maybe in some ways even kind of started or was at the beginning of this kind of whole reboot, reboot culture. Um, but I think a lot of critique of this area of this time period that might come in the future and even that we see now is that there's too much nostalgia not enough originality and so I think in this part we wanted to kind of talk through some of the examples of again in our opinion of times when nostalgia has been at the expense of the story or character and hasn't worked for us specifically and I'll remind you to go back to part two where we kind of lay out our own bias (laughs) for this (laughs) list and how we fit into the broader Star Wars community or rather when we fit into the broader Star Wars um, community and conversation. I think for us the best example of this, like within the last part, is the final scene of The Rise of Skywalker with Rey on Tatooine. And this whole scene is wrapped up in a lot of our emotions of the film as a whole and the end point of Rey's character and of her identity. So it's a very complicated scene. But I think the big piece of it for us at the time and and it's kind of even hard to talk about, but like the setting of it being Tatooine was, it was kind of like, what? <laughs> um, because it felt, it didn't feel right for the character. It felt, it felt like an example of nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. And it was like, I can look at it and say, it's cool to see the home, the Lars homestead again. Okay. Is it important? Like, is it good for Ray to be at the Lara's homestead? And for us, we would say no. Yeah, I think that if, if we subscribe to character over spectacle, this felt like spectacle where Ray's literally touring a sandy Lara's homestead, which again is super cool to see. I was, I think it's <laughs> like I want to like I want to visit Tunisia to go to this place. Yeah, like, I would <laughs> like to do the same. Yeah. <laughs> and but at the end of the day, I'm like, we're really leaving Ray's character here. Her. I, I don't know. It it just didn't work for me. And I think it, I did see through it. I also felt like to me, this story element felt like something that they thought would be super awesome and a great way to end it without thinking through the implications of the story. And it, they they thought through the end as a really amazing visual place to end as like a revisionist way and I think there has been some discussion about how it's a sunrise not a sunset like we see with uh, the other characters that we referenced in part two um, every other time that we have seen the Lars homestead but and I, I, I do personally like that it is a sunrise i think that's a, a clever change and I, I bet you'd agree with that right caitlin like that they that they change that but at the end of the day it didn't necessarily feel like this would serve ray it felt like it served me it felt like some it served me someone who was familiar with these locations i 
I don't know. And I also feel, just to finish my point from earlier, I feel like they started with this piece of, wow, this would be so cool if we ended the Skywalker saga here, but didn't really think through the implications of the story that was just being told throughout the Rise of Skywalker, which I assume has changed a lot, especially the first act. And I feel like it just doesn't necessarily track with how I think that the Skywalker saga should have ended. And I think just to go back to the idea of character over spectacle, I really do believe that this is spectacle over character. Yeah. I mean, of course I agree with you there and the character piece of it as well is like Ray's identity thrown into all of this too. And it, it's like, what does it mean for Ray to be here? Like you said, it's like we're touring, like she's just showing us around, but what does it actually mean to her? And because we're not fans of where her character went, or rather what was told to her <laughs> as a character throughout The Rise of Skywalker, it just becomes kind of that much more meaningless in the grand scheme of things. I think the caveat to this and kind of the other interesting side is that there was a time when we thought that maybe the the end of The Rise of Skywalker was Ben and Ray both at the Lars homestead and that that kind of took on I think like we would have obviously we would have felt more satisfied with that because Ben lived obviously. Um, and again, read our bias statement from the past, you know, two years of <laughs> podcasting. But I think like that would have been a very different connotation of it, of like a return to this place because for us, we view Ben as like his connection to the Skywalker family is more important than Ray's and and has more weight in the story as it was presented in the sequel trilogy. Whereas I think we interpret Ray's kind of connection to the Skywalkers as very, you know, with Luke, it's it's not great. And and it's it's a meaningful relationship, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's wholly a positive one from Ray's point of view. I think it becomes that, and he's an important figure in her life, but I think there's probably it's – a, it's a more complicated emotion than just he was a Jedi master, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then with Leia, of course, who didn't really even take on the Skywalker name, whereas – Ben is someone who was referenced throughout all of the films by his connection to the Skywalker name and the Skywalker legacy and the solo legacy as well. And so to have that kind of forgotten about and it feel like Ray is just kind of taking this name because it's there and she doesn't want the Palpatine one, <laughs> um, it did feel more empty. Whereas if they had been there together, it would have like... If we had had Ray and Ben there at the end of the of on Tatooine, it would have been this direct reflection from Attack of the Clones. Whereas we know when Anakin and Padme are there, it's kind of the beginning of Anakin's fall or the biggest step towards Anakin's fall in the very beginning. And seeing them there at the homestead, you know, we're hearing tinkerings of the Imperial theme. We all know what's coming. There's a lot of foreshadowing there. There's obviously a lot of sadness that happens there too. But if it had ended with Ray and Ben there and this feeling of new life, of the war is over, Kylo Ren is gone, their like peace is coming to the galaxy, and then like with them watching the sunrise, 
it would have had a very different connotation rather than it becoming another graveyard. And I think that's where the hollowness and it's like, like you said, like you said, when we saw it originally, it's like, I see through it and Mm -hmm. I don't like that feeling. I I had like an out-of-body experience watching it. Yeah, (laughs) I think we all did. (laughs) Well, we didn't all. There there are people who like it. Yeah, we, we did. Yeah. And I, it really does feel like, oh, I... I have this nostalgic piece for when Luke looked off into the sunset, which is definitely one of the best moments of Star Wars. So I'm going to put it in my movie and end it there because I want to like copy paste those notes of hopefulness or longing for more, which is an interesting choice for the end of well, yeah, the Skywalker cause, saga. Because Luke wanted to leave that place. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. We've it talked is, about yeah. this before and I just think, I just, I don't think it works. I think that it's a clear piece of familiarity that doesn't necessarily work for me. Agreed. And kind of uh, segueing into the next piece of familiarity, here's another example of tattooing not working for me, at least initially. The Gunslinger episode of The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. I think, I understand what Dave Filoni was trying to do in this episode. Now, upon revisiting it, I really do believe that there's some excellent elements in this episode. Things that I'm still thinking about, including the Tuscan Raiders bartering and and being able to be spoken to from sign language, essentially, and how they're civil when they're spoken to. I'll never get over the fact that that the key to talking to Tuscan Raiders or getting over said violence is communication. I think it's a perfect message for Star Wars. But I, and I, so I love that part of it, but I did not love this. It felt, I felt very jar, jarred really in, in this episode of The Mandalorian. If you've listened to that episode, you know that Caitlin and I have a lot of conflicting appeal, uh, feelings about it. And I think uh, the return to Tatooine, I'm still confused why we did that. Maybe that'll be revealed later. But it felt like a, look, we're in Star Wars now type thing. It felt very fanservice-y to me, especially the first time I watched it. Yeah, it really did. And I think given that all of our other planets that we saw in The Mandalorian before, um, I forget what the planet is actually called, but episode four, uh, <laughs> you know, the very opposite, the very green planet. It's like we're in all these Sorgan. desert. Sorgan, thank you. We're in all these desert planets. And every time, it's like in every single Star Wars trailer, there's a shot of a desert planet. And then we have the whole fandom is like, is it Tatooine? <laughs> and I remember when we landed here in the Mandalorian, I was like, is this Tatooine? And I was like, no, it's it's not Tatooine. And then I was like, oh, it's Tatooine. It's- <laughs> Tatooine. The, the docking bay sign. It's <laughs> I was like, like oh, okay. okay, great. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it, it, it's, again, it's kind of like, what for? What is the meaning of being here on Tatooine? Is it bad just to have this familiar setting? I don't know, but I know that I didn't love this episode at the same time. <laughs> so maybe it is. Yeah, it's hard because I think there was definitely nostalgic elements of Remember that time in A New Hope when there was a bar, which is now empty. You know, we go into the same bar and everything. We're, there's a there's a change here. I think the story is on some level, this is where I get a little tripped up. I think on some level it's working. We can overanalyze it and we certainly have. But my first watch, it did not work for me. And I, again, saw right through it, which I feel like isn't the best feeling. It's not an 
I'm in on the joke feeling. It's I see what they're doing here and I'm a little bored by this because I've seen it before. <laughs> yeah. And I, I which is it's just strange. And it worked for some people, but not me. The other side of it within our Dave Filoni world is like Mortis. So we see Mortis in the Clone Wars and then we see Mortis in uh, or we see the Mortis gods in Rebels. That worked for us. Why does that similar imagery work for us? But the similar imagery of the cantina and of Tatooine didn't in this instance. Because personally, I feel like that area of nostalgia that has been tread in merchandise, in in conventions for years, for 40x years, right? Um, I feel like I've seen it everywhere that I'm supposed to feel nostalgic for a cantina scene that I really don't feel that nostalgic for. <laughs> and yeah. I think I think that's what that's where the personal bit comes in, where some people will respond to that episode and be like, yes, this is so cool to see this again. And for me, I was like, this maybe the, this episode just isn't for me, but it is appealing to someone else, you know, and it is it's very much aware of the nostalgia engine that it's tapped into. And perhaps mm-hmm. some people have argued that's the brilliance of the episode. I get it, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily work for me. Yeah. But I think, too, the other side of it is recognizing that I think this is probably one of the lowest rated episodes, like, on a whole, from the yeah. first season of The Mandalorian. And so it's like, yeah, it's just, like, one man's trash is another man's treasure <laughs> kind of mentality. But then also there's, the co- like, the collective opinion side of, it, side of it, too. You know, it's, like, the difference between, like, watching this episode versus, like, Deborah Chow's first episode where the internet, like, lost its mind. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, we all collectively really love this episode. And I think when we got to this point, it was like, oh, we're all collectively not loving it as much. <laughs> and It's, it's weird. It's yeah. weird because I think that – Again, this series, The Mandalorian, was supposed to be accessible for anyone. And if you weren't even familiar with Star Wars, you can come into it. But this episode expects you to be familiar with Star Wars. I think that's why it didn't really work for me and for a lot of people, because the expectation is there. It did feel like a wink, wink, look at this sign, wink, wink, look at this this cantina, wow, look at the difference here. And in fact, they borrowed, I saw an article today that they borrowed, Dave went into the archives, borrowed some footage from A New Hope, which I actually think is quite cool that it was included in there. Um, mm-hmm. But hello, like it's it's included in there. And that's definitely in order to recreate the feeling, that warm, fuzzy feeling that we got when we saw the wretched hive of scum and villainy for the first time. Yeah, Exactly. I wonder if they feel they got enough return on their investment with that one. I don't know. I think that's a it's a good question. I feel like probably it's the like the lowest one on the list like you say. So it would be interesting to revisit that. I still think I my opinion of the episode is evolving. Um but I still think that it was a little misguided and needed a little bit more revising. And if that that message of look at how different things are, I think it needed to beat me over the head a little bit more. Yeah, or maybe offer, I don't know, just something a little different than just an empty cantina and Moss Eisley. The next one that I want to revisit is we're going back to the Rise of Skywalker. Sorry, guys. But this piece of nostalgia that has been heavily analyzed, especially recently, about when Luke raises the X-Wing from the water in The Rise of Skywalker for Rey 
and it uses Yoda's theme. And this to me, no emotion, <laughs> zero emotion. Empty head. I, yeah, empty head, no thoughts, head empty. It's it's like I can't. I mainly because I feel like the the theme was sort of misused. Much smarter people have said more about this scene than I have. And I will link a great video on the music of this scene in the description. But to me, this scene played with musical notes that were supposed to make me feel nostalgic of Empire Strikes Back, which is widely regarded as Star Wars's best film. And I think it was supposed to make me feel this, you know, dazzle and wonder that Yoda made me feel or made the audiences everywhere feel, right? When he delivered those iconic lines. And Luke's character didn't really do that for me. And I think that it didn't necessarily, it felt like a total character shift from the Luke that I had just seen in The Last Jedi. I think that this scene, it just felt like a... It felt like how some of these other elements of Trash felt to us watching it of, oh, this thing that was like the thing in this film, let's put it in here and we'll change up which characters are doing it. But I think like it goes away from the the character of it, like you were saying about them not – like it, this Luke didn't feel connected to The Last Jedi Luke when in The Last Jedi Luke's like – Yoda says in The Last Jedi that we have to, we are what they grow beyond. And in The Last Jedi, Luke showed that he had grown beyond Yoda in being able to uh, force project himself to the battle on crate. That was his raising the X-Wing moment. And Luke already also had a raising the X-Wing moment in the original trilogy when, you know, he helps redeem his father (laughs) and like the power of love (laughs) and like that force connection there. But like the actual usage of the force, I felt like Luke had that moment. Like in Empire Strikes Back, he's so he's in such disbelief of Yoda doing that. And we get this kind of weird parallel in The Last Jedi of Kylo being in disbelief of Luke doing what he's doing, even though he's like very aware, like he's very knowledgeable in the force. And that thing was so intense that it like, it was so powerful. It was so much that it took his life. So to have this kind of like backpedaling of of power in a way when he's already done the most powerful thing to do something we've already seen that he already grew beyond it just it didn't feel it didn't feel meaningful and yeah it like there was this huge disconnect to like the these two luke's like they really are kind of diametrically opposed in my opinion And it doesn't feel connected. And so to just kind of see him regurgitate the same thing that Yoda did, that Luke already has done something more powerful than, it was just like, oh, like, of course you could do that, I guess. Why are you doing it now? I mean, I I know why you're doing it now, so that Ray has a ship, but also, what? (laughs) It was another one of those moments where you're sitting there and you're like, I know what this is trying to do. I know this emotion that it's trying to elicit from me. And I'm sorry, but you're not going to get it. (laughs) And because I see through it and it's not working for me, I'm not nostalgic. It's not tapping into the right nostalgia level that is 
giving me emotion besides <sighs> no thoughts head empty. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I think it will be interesting to see the Luke and R2 scene, how it's received in the future. Yeah. I do think they're different. I do think that the Luke one is very – is much – is more character-driven and – I think it works better as a character moment, but I wonder if future generations will be like, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me feel something about a new hope in this moment with this Carrie Fisher hologram. I see it and I don't like it. I think that's a possibility. Part of me wishes that this scene was, well, this is probably gets to the heart of the problem of this scene for me is I wish that Ray had raised the ship. She was aware of it. She knew that it was there in the last Jedi. She gets a moment of looking over, over, the cliff and seeing it sunken and i think that it's ray raising it would have been the definition of we are what they grow beyond right if if we are to that by the end of the rise of skywalker to believe this idea that luke and leia both trained ray which is what the film puts forth right mm-hmm. then perhaps ray had learned enough to understand that she can use everything around her to get exactly where she needs to go. She has everything she needs. And her raising the the X-Wing on her own accord without knowing that the same thing was done in Empire Strikes Back. Because Ray's never seen the Empire Strikes Back, you know? And I think that that would have been more powerful for Ray rather than let's have this really cool moment with Luke. With this awesome soundtrack that we're so familiar with from... The Empire Strikes Back that always elicits tears, especially for me. <laughs> and I think it didn't feel very personal. It didn't feel very character driven. It felt more spectacle driven. Kind of felt like a Hallmark card with Star Wars. Yeah, especially with that like Luke giggle at the end. I can't. Okay. <laughs> brush right past that or else I won't stop. <laughs> so our uh, last piece of kind of... Uh, not great nostalgia uh, is within the sequel trilogy too. And it's funny because I referenced before that I think the Falcon was a really good piece of The Force Awakens as far as utilizing nostalgia in a good way. But it also came with some drawbacks too. And these almost kind of fall more in line with the Easter egg fan service side of nostalgia. But I think it's given enough time within the film that We can still talk about it here. And that is the training orb on The Force Awakens that Finn comes across. And then also later on in Tross when Finn, Poe, and Chewie are playing the Dejaric hollow chess game. I think that – I think these moments are okay. Like I wouldn't – like these obviously aren't on the same level as like Rey on Tatooine or or like the Gunslinger or Luke and Rey on Octo. These are like, this is kind of its own category, I think. But I think that kind of the pause that is given for these moments is so long. It's kind of what we've been saying about, I can see what you're doing. It's like, look, we're on the Falcon. Look, we're in the like lounge area. Look, do you see Finn holding the training orb? Look at him not know what it is. You know what it is, don't you? Because you've seen Star Wars. <laughs> and the moment is just kind of so long. It's like, okay, I get it. It's still on the Falcon. No one's cleaned up that thing in, you know, 20 plus years. The Jajar game works a little better, I think, um, because it is a new 
like it's new characters playing this game and they talk about having a history with the game but i think it's still kind of in line because it is still at like that lounge table setting and chewy is there and of course like we know that chewy is remembering being there with luke and han and c3po and, and all of them and i don't think that's necessarily bad but it it felt gratuitous. It felt fan servicey and a little. It felt a little bit over the top. I th- I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that it it lingers a little too long. The Finn with the training orb and finding it in in the box has bothered me from day one, from mm-hmm. December fourteenth, two thousand fifteen. It was like I remember looking at you in the movie theater and be and rolling our eyes. Yeah, it was it was in. <laughs> I think that it really is a moment of look at this thing. Don't you remember this thing? This thing was really important. Did you see it? Luke uh, Finn saw it. Luke used to play with us. Finn saw it. It's still there. Can you believe it? Wow, have nostalgia for this thing. And I just see through it. Like I just created this whole storytelling element, like <laughs> this narrative significance of why it's included in there. And that really bothers me. Mm-hmm. And I think that. I'm still kind of like, it's kind of amazing that it's still there. Luke still had to train, right? (laughs) Maybe it was on the Falcon. I don't get it. Why are things still there? But I guess some things are still in my childhood bedroom from 20 years ago that have been there forever. So maybe it's a little pot calling the kettle black for both of us on that one. Exactly. Exactly. The Falcon (laughs) is messy. So I get it. It works. That's why it's in the movie. But I definitely the, the camera lingering on it and Finn's reaction to it is interesting. Because I, I think that there's a lot of things to react to in the Falcon, especially when you're going through boxes. And to react specifically to that um, felt like, look at the thing. Yeah, it really did. Because I think it was like we were already in the Falcon. And we already yeah. had this this great sequence with Ray and Finn escaping um, from Jakku. And seeing them in those places where we saw Han and Luke in A New Hope. And when they were, you know, leaving Tatooine themselves, their own desert planet. Like, for as much as it was two people on the Falcon leaving a desert planet, <laughs> it, it still worked really well. And it was fun to see them not know where things were on the Falcon. And yeah. not and like... Finn kind of going out of control on the little chair and not knowing how to control it. Like, that was funny. And I think that worked really well. So it was like we were already on the Falcon and had that nostalgic piece to it. So this just was so heavy-handed. And I really do like the Falcon's role within Star Wars, I think, even more now reflecting on it. Because it, it does just allow – it it kind of does everything you need it to do because it's been present in so many different things. It is its own setting. It gets its glamour shot in The Force Awakens. The garbage will do. Such a great moment. And I I applauded in that moment when we saw it the first time. But then like the training orb, like Charlotte said, I was like, oh my God, like I know who that's for and it's not for me. And it was just really um, heavy handed. But I think like being able to see the Falcon in different iterations, like even seeing it in Solo, I think is really important, too, because Solo is Solo has Solo has like a lot of Easter eggs, I think, and it handles them really well. But using the Falcon and kind of completely recreating it was such was such like a design. Like it was so exciting to see this old thing be new Mm -hmm. and. It worked really well, I think. I agree. I actually, just to return to the Rise of Skywalker Dejara game, I, I 
I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on that one, whether that was a little too wink, wink. I think there just are a lot more examples in The Rise of Skywalker as a whole that I think are more reductive to the story as a whole than this specific instance, even though I understand why it's lumped in here with um, the training orb discussion with Finn. Because I think it works a little bit better because I do think it's a fun scene. Yeah. And I think it's a fun intro as well. And I also like the kind of revisionist history of the fact that uh, I guess it's not necessarily revisionist, is it? That Chewie cheats because yeah. the whole let the Wookiee win thing, it kind of, it, it, it works. I think it works a little bit better than I think we're giving it credit for here. I don't necessarily think that, um, but I think, I think the presence of it is an interesting place to start with the rise of Skywalker, because I think it is meant to make you feel nostalgic for all the times that were spent on it, including the Jajaric game and letting the Wookiee win. I think the scene as a whole is nostalgic, but I think as a character moment, I think it actually works quite well in establishing the rapport again with Poe and Finn. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that, yeah, I think that that scene works a lot better. I laughed a lot when I first saw it. This is before the film had started, really, so we were all in high spirits seeing this scene. Things were good. Um, Bulio hadn't been beheaded yet, right? So, like, we liked Bulio. We liked Bulio. Like Bulio. <laughs> we liked Bulio. Um, all, all was well. <laughs> but I think it's interesting the looking at it from the outside, though, that you have the same director lingering in the same spot in like the same part of the movie. The beginning. Mm. It's not quite the beginning with the Force Awakens, but the same seats, the same spots, the same camera angles. <laughs> um, it's the comfort. It's the comfort there. It is, but it, but like, but then like you contrast it with the Last Jedi, which Luke is also sitting at that table. Like we have three scenes in this. Well, we have more than three, but like in that we're talking about now, we have these three scenes of very specific nostalgia. But we're here saying like, if we're ranking them, we're going Last Jedi tross um and then force awakens but like with the last jedi it's we're not at the table with luke whereas with finn and with finn and poe and chewy we're kind of more at the table with them whereas the camera is situated far back and we're watching luke see this hologram with leia and it's a dark space like the lights aren't really on like it is more ominous or not hate myself for using the word ominous again but it's more <laughs> somber as the better word there um as opposed to basically honestly jj doing the same thing with a different object <laughs> in his two movies yeah it's definitely a contrast yeah i just think it's yeah it's interesting yeah it is i think i added one more i know that was supposed to be our last one but i I added one more that I don't know if I necessarily agree with, but it does feel like some people do. And I wanted to kind of open it up for discussion. The end of Rogue One with Vader is often linked to nostalgic purposes. I've seen a lot of people talk about how Vader doesn't really serve a narrative function within Rogue One. And I think there's definitely, I feel like I agree with that in a lot of senses. However, I do like the end scene and I like Vader's inclusion because... I'm nostalgic for Darth Vader and Anakin and everything that is wrapped up with him. And I think that the last scene in Rogue One, which my understanding 
the details of Rogue One's construction are still quite sketchy to me. <laughs> but my understanding is that was a late addition. And that connective tissue that is supposed to be there is so seamless that it really does tap into your nostalgia in your brain by playing the same the, the sounds and everything, but being almost ceaselessly violent um, for shock value. And I I don't know. I feel like this piece um, does play into your nostalgia. Now that I'm talking through it, I don't necessarily think it's a con, <laughs> but I do um, I do see how it. But that's my personal opinion, you know. And I think that. What do you think about the scene, Caitlin? I don't know. I think this whole discussion has really just made me more aware or even like just talking through it of like a big piece of these things is the setting a huge part of our nostalgia is the setting and so seeing vader in that space that we hadn't well we had seen him before but doing the beginning part of the story that he hadn't because on the flip side of that part of why we like vader and rogue one is because he's on mustafar and we like seeing mustafar yes again <laughs> so, that's the the nostalgia for mustafar yeah you know the, it's like the same thing is that we were upset in the rise of skywalker that we didn't get any sort of clue really that we were on mustafar besides the visual dictionary oh my god and how much did we want that uh, we wanted our collective nostalgia to be tapped into painful it is it's it's so tough because I think that I think the moral of this episode for me is the where I come down. I don't want it to influence the survey, but I, I just feel like I have to say it is that I really do feel like we cannot bar a movie for being for playing too much into our nostalgia because it really does vary person to person. I think a movie like maybe The Rise of Skywalker um, tried to give the most satisfying ending and therefore probably dialed the level the level up to 100 for nostalgia elements um mm. as often as it possibly could but part of me wonders if i would have had a different reaction to the movie if my nostalgia my my nostalgic brain was satisfied because i don't think it necessarily was and there are certain pieces like mustafar that I am so desperate for. <laughs> I wish that we got more of that. And that's because I want this connection to Revenge of the Sith, which is my favorite Star Wars movie. And I think that it's, and I do think that it would have served the story a little bit better, all these things, right, obviously. But I think that because I've thought a lot about Mustafar and I've thought a lot about what it means for the story. Yeah. And even that in itself is nostalgic. <laughs> it's very, yeah. very, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a it's vicious cycle. cycle. But it is, you know, this whole conversation we talked about in part one about fan service and like being aware of your fandom and what people are saying. And I think that particularly with like the Star Wars authors, we've heard them say a lot on social media of like, please don't send me your ideas <laughs> because I don't want it to influence what I'm thinking. But you know, I think that the creators and Lucasfilm and Story Group are involved on social media. And like we talk a lot about wanting them to be more aware of the things that people are talking about in the fandom. And so if it is supposed to be sat like this movie, like Tross was marketed as satisfying to the end of the Skywalker saga. But when you're kind of like 
almost like putting numeric data on it of here are all the times that you created a nostalgic moment for this one set of Star Wars, but not the other set of Star Wars or a different piece of Star Wars. It feels like you're catering to a certain uh, type of fan or a fan who uh, a type of fan that had um, a specific experience with Star Wars, which is similar like from my perspective, and this is a generalization, but similar to JJ's experience of Star Wars, which is not a bad experience of Star Wars. It's a good experience. But when, if this is supposed to be for Star Wars fans, it the film doesn't appear to say that <laughs> because because it's it doesn't bring anything from that in. And people will say like, well, Palpatine is there. And okay, yes, Palpatine is there, but he's kind of operating within his original trilogy self. He's not really operating within his second trilogy self. The only thing that really is brought in from the prequel trilogy is that he is called Palpatine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just like, that's kind of, I think, why Rogue One works is because it it gave us both. (laughs) It gave us Mustafar and it gave us... um, the end with on Leia's ship on on the Tantive for it gave us both and like that sounds so greedy and so impossible to be like you have to cater or you have to like to say to cater to fans is it sounds negative but I don't really mean it that way but like you need elements of all of it if you're gonna be building on nostalgia you also have to recognize that nostalgia comes in very different places for different fans and maybe you're leaning a little bit more heavily on the original trilogy because of the nature of the film itself but you can't just slap on a palpatine in the film and call it a day either like there should be meaning to these things and i think within rogue one it is i think it, it uh, we should have had it in the beginning in part 2 it is good because the nostalgia factor of the setting of musafar and Ta- and the tantive works for us all works for a lot of fans on a nostalgia factor but then for vader himself i think it works just kind of like getting to see him in that element in that time period we're not really learning anything new about vader it's really just seeing him in these familiar spaces Mm-hmm. We learn nothing new about Vader. <laughs> I, I would I would push back about that. I think that we learn that he is as vicious as we've heard about, something that we hadn't necessarily seen at this point. But right? had any of us doubted that? No, but I think there perhaps could have been an argument of his viciousness in new canon. I don't know. I'm getting a little too tripped out over, over that, but I do think that it we did learn that what came before was, wow, he was really freaking close to Princess Leia. Yeah, <laughs> she got I mean, away real quick. <laughs> it's like There's nothing groundbreaking about what we yes. see of Vader. It really yeah. is the it, like, character over spectacle. It's the spectacle of seeing him on Mustafar and the spectacle of seeing him in the, on the Tantive, like that close to that, to that moment. But we know that that moment that it's directly proceeding in a new hope is the, the catalyst haha rogue one for the the rest of the saga (laughs) yeah i think that vader plays off of krennic actually i think vader actually serves krennic's story more than the opposite which is perfect because krennic is a main character in rogue one and 
if Vader didn't necessarily overshadow Krennic's aspirations. Wow, aspirations. I <laughs> I did not mean to do that, but I did that. <laughs> I think that in, instead it it only shows how desperate he is for attention. And that's what we learn about Vader is that he is in charge of people and trying to in sort of acts as this liaison between the emperor and directors and moths. But at the same time, we don't necessarily like that's what we you and I learn, but in terms of the story, what we really learn is Krennic is desperate for attention <laughs> and credit. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, I think you're right. Like Vader serves Vader serves Krennic's story because Krennic is the main character and also we know who Vader is in this time period. So there's like that piece of it too. And, but I think like other things like Vader Immortal and the Vader comics have, have shown some other sides to, to Vader in this time period, but it is wrapped up in Mustafar too. It, yeah, it, it's a good example because it, it works for the, like, that's the thing. The Rogue One thing works for the spectacle of it because Vader isn't actually really a character in Rogue One, whereas the spectacle of Rey on Tatooine doesn't work because Rey is the main character and we don't see the connection that she has to Tatooine, so it's not meaningful, whereas we understand the connection that Vader has to Mustafar, but also like we're not needing him to do something like groundbreaking in his story because this isn't his story and we know what he's we know we know more or less what he's up to in this time frame or like his headspace um we know a lot about him in this time frame already so i don't know i think it, it's a good point of comparison what i'm finding in these negatives honestly with the exception of the final scene in tross which i it's going to take me years to reconcile with and that's me personally is that i think that there are pros and cons within the cons themselves of understanding how someone personally comes at them yeah i think i think i would agree for the most part <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I guess you could say that about the Rise of Skywalker ending as well. I just, I really feel like nostalgia is so personal. And that's why I'm so interested for our next episode to discuss how other people respond to nostalgia within Star Wars and whether or not people think it's clouding current media and how nostalgia can inform future Star Wars stories because it is going to continue to be a part of Star Wars for forever and ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, no matter what. And I think that in some ways it's going to be a consistent trial and error for understanding what works and what audience responds respond to and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's part of the whole thing of, of what we've said a lot of, oh, I can't wait until the kids who grew up with the second trilogy are making Star Wars mm -hmm. because it will it will feel like right now it feels unbalanced, I think, for people like us and it's not that we necessarily always dislike the unbalance, but it does feel unbalanced. Yeah. And, and I think that that goes back to the 30-year gap. And yeah. maybe that 30-year gap is really going to turn into a 20-year gap um, just because of m more people younger and younger are getting more into filmmaking than they are in their later life. But uh, we'll, we'll see, I guess. you know. And I hope that that barrier of your reference point of childhood is continually re revised as Star Wars, the modern mythology, gets revised. Yeah. Uh, I think the thesis statement of the thesis statement of the thesis statement is that it's all very complicated, <laughs> very yeah. layered, and very personal. So 
I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, Charlotte and I are really excited about this episode. So I hope you take a minute or two to fill out our survey. Um, the more responses we have, the better our discussion will be next week and or whenever we record this. Because if we don't get a lot of responses, we're just going to wait until we get more responses <laughs> to record. <laughs> so let that, if you, if you like having new Sky Talkers episodes on your feed with more regularity or more frequency, um, fill out the survey so that we get a good data set to pull from. I would actually be really interested to see what what people consider their pros and cons of nostalgia, what works for them, what doesn't. Um, as we've said, it is so personal. So please tell us what your personal opinion on it is. And it's not often that we have opportunities to do this all the time um, for the show. So please take a second if you... Um, are able to. We would really love to hear what you think. And um, you can find us online and other places too on Twitter at SkytalkersPod. And then also our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, Instagram, and Facebook if you want to find us there. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes, so this is the part where I ask you to leave us a review on iTunes, what you can do in this order, almost like PEMDAS, right, from like algebra and stuff, is number one, you're gonna I don't have a fancy acronym for it though but number one you're just gonna click on the show notes you're gonna look at all the great resources that are in there but you're also gonna click on the survey you're gonna take five to seven minutes to fill that out more or less depending on your prerogative you're gonna x out of that google survey spreadsheet and then you're gonna like type in itunes or on your phone and you're gonna leave us a review (laughs) if you haven't already (laughs) that's the order of operations for the end of this guy talkers episode and then Step three after all of that is if you haven't followed us on your social media platform of choice, you will go and search for Sky Talkers there. <laughs> so three steps. <laughs> See if you can complete them all. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and then if you're interested in a fourth step, you can also head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there if you're interested. Yeah, our Patreon is a really fun place lately. I don't know if we've mentioned this on the main show, but we are doing... Every two weeks, we're talking about the Mandalorian behind the scenes Disney gallery on Disney Plus. Man, that title is really long. Um, And we're having a really great time with it. That is available at all levels. So um, we're super excited about that. And we also have a Discord that is really, really fun. Mm -hmm. So I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons today. Bethany, Jackson, Joey, David, Larry, I, Rebel, James, Z, Sarah, Becca, Katie, Diana, Susanna, Amy, Kelly, Courtney, and Suara. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.